South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. It's a little chilly out there, but it is a beautiful Sunday morning out there. It's, golly, it's just clear blue skies. Don't know if you saw that moon going down. Uh, not a lot of moon. I think new moon is on uh, Thursday or so. Those of you guys that plant by the moon, you know it's about time to start planting potatoes. Oh, there's so many things we can talk about, but the most important thing is what you want to talk about. Looks like John and James and Amanda and George have taken all four phone lines, so hang on a minute before you dial, and uh, we'll get one available for you pretty quickly. Let's just get started, Chris. Uh, John is up first. Good morning. Yes, good morning. I think you answered one of my questions. I was looking for someone to uh, kind of consult and tell us what plants we can plant where with our drip irrigation. Is that uh-huh. the Green Grow Organics? Is that what they do? They will do consultation as well. They they don't do planting. They don't do landscaping beyond just some very simple things. But Perfect. Sam's been doing it for over 30 years, and uh, he's got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. So I would have no hesitation recommending him to you. He's Great. a lot cheaper than... Yeah, he's a lot cheaper than uh, landscape architects and a whole lot smarter than most of them, too. I'm going by memory, but I believe his phone number is 275-8200. Might check that to be sure, but 210-275-8200. I believe that's the number you can get through to Sam on. Great. Um, Next question. We have a tortoise that we've had for years, and we now are kind of putting him in a raised uh, outside and uh, kind of an enclosure in the summer to keep, you know, let him get a little more sun and explore a little bit. Uh, we usually bring them in at night because we do have a lot of uh-huh. strange critters that walk around. Uh, do you sell a dirt uh, there I can buy by the bag that you feel wouldn't have anything adverse in the dirt that would hurt him? Oh, absolutely. We have a fully organic garden soil. Uh, we have 100% organic compost and 100% organic mulch. But, uh, yeah, these are all products by nature's creation, and everything they do is organic. And uh, uh, there should not be, uh, there definitely will not be any pesticides or treated wood or anything like that in there. Uh, is this one of your big uh, African tortoises? No, well, he's fairly small. He's a uh, Texas uh, three-toed. He dropped into oh, okay. our pool during a drought about 12, 15 <laughs> years ago. He's been a, he's wonderful. He plays with the cats. He actually comes most times when you call him. You know, you're you're the second one. Dr. Kirby has about an 80-pound African tortoise, and uh, Mm -hmm. I think her name's Betsy. And and he says that that she comes when he calls him. And I just have this mental picture. I've not met her yet, but I just have this mental picture of this this 80-pound turtle slowly turning five degrees at a time to get turned around 180 (laughs) degrees. Now, now your little little Texas tortoise (laughs) can can turn a whole lot faster than that but i had them growing up too i lived in albuquerque for a while and uh, oh sure oh yeah. golly we caught them there we caught them on my little grandfather's farm out uh, my grandfather's little farm outside of dallas so uh they're great pets very undemanding but uh they give you a finger a pretty good pinch if you're not careful when you're hand feeding them oh, <laughs> oh yes the, the garden soil would be the most dense then probably right yes it would be one that uh he or she can burrow down into Okay, great. My last question is a really weird one. A a lady that always had exotic plants gave my wife and I this plant. She called it a night-blooming Circe. Uh, She is long gone, her plants. 
Yeah, it's, it's night blooming cereus, C-E-R-E-U-S. Oh. Um, it's actually oh. a tropical tropical cactus. Uh, won't mm-hmm. take a freeze. Um, what can I tell you about it? Well, it's uh, we had it uh, for several years. It never bloomed, and we just kind of you know put it in our greenhouse. I think pretty sure she must have told us it was tropical. And one day we had a couple blooms, and they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they you know at night or at, at dusk they came out, and no you know fragrance. And then they died in the morning. And over the years, it's grown quite a bit, and we it's beautiful when we have sometimes eight, ten blooms. My yes, wife sir. decided to take a couple of the leaves and try to root them, uh-huh. and they eventually rooted, and we had those for a couple of years, and they didn't do anything, and then one day, they got a bunch of blooms. Now, the leaves came off that plant, but mm-hmm. the blooms are little yellow flowers that bloom in the daylight and stay for days. Ah, uh, that's not the same plant. <laughs> you, uh, something else was in that pot that uh, came up and bloomed, okay. or something got mixed in because uh, the cirrus. There, there are many other tropical cacti. Uh, in fact, there are pinks and reds and purples and many day bloomers. But the night blooming cirrus is always white. It's always that large flower, and. Um, but, you know, I've seen, I'll never forget an old friend in Dallas who thought he had the most unusual, this was a Cymbidium orchid, and it was a actually a weed that had grown up that had leaves that looked something like the orchid. But, uh, no, whatever you're looking at there is uh, is not your night-blooming okay. cirrus. If you ever want to take a picture of it, you can bring by us or take by a good nursery, and I'm sure somebody can tell you what it is that you're looking at. Um, they root easily. I mean, if you do it in warm weather, they'll root within days if you do it uh you know in cooler weather on your night building series as long as you have a propagating mat or something uh uh they will root and become established very very quickly and uh be a great thing to share just be sure your friends have room for them because if you have discovered they get quite large and they will not take freezing weather in fact they don't even like it below about 50 degrees so uh great plant sounds like y'all are doing very well with it Okay, well, thank you. That does it. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, James is up next. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Well, I don't have a nice iron stove with a nice hot cedar fire going in it, so I'm probably not doing quite as well as you, but uh, I just got through, through helping unload about 200 more cases of plants off a big semi, so I got my exercise to stay warm this morning. Boy, that'll wake you up in the morning. Yeah, that's two days in a row. I don't know where we're going to put all these things, but, man, it's sure pretty. Golly, it looks like a tropical rainforest around here. That's great. Uh, we talked about seed starting yesterday, and uh, yes, sir. I forgot the most important thing. Which is? Uh, a lot of the uh, young novice seed starters will uh, will put a, a medium in a tray, uh-huh. and then they won't press it down, uh-huh. and then they'll sow their seeds, and then they'll start watering, which is not the way to do it. And here at the farm is uh, we load the trays, and if mm-hmm. they need to be compressed, you know, uh, we'll compress oh, yeah. them a little bit. And then the first water, they get rainwater and a mycorrhiza uh it's called plant success. I get it from Bright Ideas. Uh, you uh-huh. probably know what it is. 
Yeah, it's mycorrhizal. They're both endo and ecto. We actually use one that's uh, made up in Bernie. I'm not sure where Troy gets his, but uh, there's a fella that, uh, um, called Bright Ideas. That Not Bright Ideas, what I'm thinking is Wild Root Organics. Yeah, is the one we use. But, you know, sadly, the guy who originated all this stuff out of North Carolina, Dr. Donald Marks, he has a company, and his packages are tiny and super expensive, but there are several companies out there making a really good mycorrhizal blend like you're describing, and uh, they're very, very reasonably priced. And, uh, you know, there, there are a handful of plants that don't, Form mycorrhizal association. Some are vegetables like broccoli. They don't they don't uh, react with the mycorrhizae in any way. But probably ninety eight percent of the plants that mycorrhizal fungus is one of the most important components to its good health. So yeah, you're doing important. it all right. The most important thing is to get those trays soaked, and I mean uh-huh. wet all the way to the bottom because that's where everybody drops the ball. They they try yes, to sir. sow into a a loose medium, and then they try to get it wet after they've already sown, and it's it usually turns uh, out to be a big disaster. So yeah, those, absolutely. Those trays, those trays need to be soaked, and I mean soaked good. And you, you can tell uh, how much, uh, you know, water you've got in just by lifting up a corner, and you know that oh, yeah. you've been a nurseryman for a long time. You know that. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, it's and as you have you as we've talked before, uh, it's so important to soak it all the way through. And planting those transplants, it's so important that they're wet because if you put a dry plant in the ground, it's sometimes almost impossible to fully saturate that root ball when it's so much easier to do before you plant them. So yeah, you're exactly right as far as as far as the seeds and as far as the transplants. Man, you you better be sure it's wet before you put it in the ground, or you're, you're just not going to do as well. Bob, we use a soil block to start uh-huh. just about everything. Right. And that's a, that's a blend we put in the cement mixer, and then we put water in, and here we go, and don't you know. And it's just like building little mud pies, and they're really wet when you, when you sow the seeds. They don't require any more water until they germinate. Uh, after, uh-huh. You know, you put your germination dome on and put them on a heat mat. So uh, I was thinking that I forgot to mention that to the the, the young seed starters. That's real important to get those uh, those trays nice and wet. And if well. you have rainwater. That's a lot better. <laughs> That's a whole lot better. And, you know, I even tell people if you're dealing with city water, you, you never know whether the your municipal water source is using chlorine or chloramine. And, of course, you can get rid of chlorine just by letting that water stand for a while. But uh, I tell people, go down to the aquarium shop and get some of those drops that you use when you've got a tropical fish tank and you want to be sure all the bad stuff's out of the water. Rainwater is still by far the best, but you can take even this crappy old city water and uh, and take most of the toxic stuff out with just a few drops of your aquarium solution. And uh, I think that's important. I think, you know, small amount of chlorine they've actually shown is beneficial to plants, but too much. Uh, damages the plants and sterilizes the soil, and we don't want either one of those things in in your garden or my garden. You can turn the water on it around this community, and and the chlorine smell will burn your eyes. It's uh, oh yeah, pretty intense. Yeah. So it it really is. Well, I tell you what, you're going to have to do, James. Is one of your one of your young uh, 
apprentices, I will call them. Uh, and you know that's 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 sadly something that that we've lost in this country. I think Germany's about the only country where they really still have an apprentice program in so many different trades. But you need to find one of your apprentices that is uh, talented with uh, making videos. And some of these things you're talking about, uh, um, I, it wouldn't be me. I'm not smart enough. I but we've got some young people that work for us that know about making a video and putting it on YouTube and things like that because you do a great job of describing, but uh, you'd sure be doing the world a real service if you were, were able to do some, some videos and actually show people how you make your seed blocks, show people how you do some of these things you and I have the pleasure of talking about on the radio. I remember one of my, uh, one of my students was telling me that uh, they, were, uh, they were loading trays with uh, real expensive uh, tomato seed and uh-huh. they had a i think it was some master gardeners that had got together and the one woman they had all the trays loaded and they had them laid out and uh she came by with a with a, a sprayer on the end of the hose and started spraying those trays and and uh, i think it, that was 50 or 60 dollars worth of tomato seed that got uh, oh, blown out so <laughs> <laughs> you really need to know what you're doing. Well, uh, we were just, uh, I was thinking of a quote uh, that my engineer and I were talking about a minute ago, uh, and we won't, we won't talk about uh, some of the personnel involved, but uh, one, of my, one of my many expressions, and you know me, I've got a saying for everything, is uh, genius has its limits, but stupidity knows no bounds. You can't <laughs> so, <make> stupid, man. <laughs> you can't. It's always such a pleasure talking to you, James. Hope you have a wonderful Sunday out there. And looks like... Uh, at least the the forecast that I've looked at, they've raised our temperatures up a little bit for the end of the week. We're still going to get chilly. You and I are probably both going to see a pretty hard freeze, but uh, it's about five, six degrees higher than what they were forecasting earlier in the week. So hope that trend continues because uh, we don't we don't need a hard freeze this late. Yes, sir. That was th- those first reports were really scary. Yep. Yep, I think the I think the guy making the report must have stock in a company that sells electric heaters or something like that. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's like the 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 weatherman's entertainment now, you know. It's, there you they go. Wanna, they want to try to tantalize <laughs> you or whatever the word is. I don't know. You know, it's just almost comedic. But uh, uh, anyway, don't get me started on that. I, I have the pleasure of uh, dealing with a, a real meteorologist through our groundwater district and he doesn't do day-by-day forecasts but he does some long-range forecasting and uh, I always say he's the guy that's paid to be right these clowns on radio and tv uh, they don't they don't suffer any repercussions if you and I have a bunch of valuable plants freeze so anyway you get out and have a good Sunday and uh, I'll look forward to our next visit thanks so much for calling this morning thanks Bob thank you James we'll talk again soon all right let's talk for a minute about uh, Medina uh, Medina Agricultural. I was about to launch into the growing green and the Haster Grow plant and some of those things that, uh, you know, that James and I are always talking about. You know, you just need to have a good fertilizer, no matter whether it's your grass, your trees, your shrubs, your ground cover, your vegetable gardens, your house plants. Everything needs to eat, so to speak. And, uh, you know, we prefer to have good organic and natural products. And uh, that's what Medina's been producing for over 50 years in our area. Not all their products are certified organic, and uh, you know, but they all follow nature. They are all non-toxic materials. And uh, 
I just, you know, love being able to talk about their fully certified growing green. But now in the liquid fertilizers, I use a lot of the Has to Grow plant, and I'm very, very fond of their new liquid fish formulation. That stuff's just outstanding. I asked uh, ask, uh, Stuart about uh, getting a full organic label on that, and he was saying, I think he said he will have to find organic molasses or one of the things that uh, he puts in, but maybe that'll be along one of these days. But just know it's a name you can trust. It's time to be fertilizing, too. Plants don't uh, take up that fertilizer immediately. It needs to be active by microbes in the soil. Good time to get your fertilizer on now so that your plants will be ready for that really strong burst of growth here when it warms up to stay warm. Look for the name Medina Agriculture. You'll find their products wherever fine organics are sold. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, it's getting Amanda, George, and Patty, and Megan, and Amanda's next. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm I'm well awake this morning. Uh, I just got the count. It was 203 cases came off that truck before I went on the air. So, yeah, it's uh, this is one morning when I actually have to look awake or happen to look awake as well as trying to sound awake. So it's a beautiful morning out there. Golly, it's going to be a great day. It is beautiful. I have just a couple of questions. Um, I had planted some onion sets, and I uh-huh. was just wondering how often should I fertilize my onions? Well, you know, did you did you put any dry fertilizer in the ground before you planted? Yes, I did. Okay, then you really don't need to worry about fertilizing at all for four to six weeks. After that, I start trying to feed them about every two weeks or so with a good liquid like has to grow plant or something like that. So every two weeks after that? Yeah. Yeah, but for this first month or six weeks, just let them grow and take advantage of that uh, dry fertilizer you put in the ground. And uh, I'm sure you have plenty of other things to occupy your time. Oh, yes. And and how about kale? How often? Every two weeks as well for kale? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And then uh, last question. Um, so for the month of February, what kind of seeds can I start? Well, they're not from seed, but if you want to plant potatoes, we're getting real close to potato planting season. If you want to start seeds to put out later, uh, it's time to do tomatoes and peppers and eggplant. If you want to actually plant seeds in the garden, I probably could get another crop of lettuce in. Uh, you can certainly get another crop of radishes because they produce so quickly. Um, that's going to be most of the things I'm going to suggest from seed right now. Okay, sounds good. I guess I got and, a little bit of stuff to do. Well, there's never a lack of something to do in the garden. And let, let me tell you one. Let me tell you one thing, just to just to be sure you're always getting what you want. Um, what you set out are almost certainly the plants, onion plants. Did you get a, a little bunch of plants with maybe a hundred in a bunch? The, no, it was uh, the little like uh, it looks like a little onion. Okay, well that so that set. is indeed called called a set. I have never had very good luck producing good onions from sets in this area. It seems like they usually bolt uh, before you know before they get up to a decent size. So in general, I recommend the plants much more highly than the sets. I hope you'll call me back and let me know how they do for you. But I've always had okay. better luck with the with the plants than I have with the sets. And if you want to do a little side by side comparison, most of your nurseries will still have some plants, and it's not too late to uh, to plant onions from plants. So. Uh, uh, put in a few plants and tell me which ones do best in your garden. Now, for me, the plants have just always done better, and they're a heck of a lot cheaper, too. 
Uh, do you still have sets at your place? I believe we do. Heather, we still have uh, onion plants out there, don't we? Yes. We Yes, she says we do. Okay, maybe I'll try to do that then, see, see what it does. You do it, and you report the results back to me. Uh, well, do. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Amanda. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, George is next. Uh, good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Last week you mentioned something to someone about a product to spray on a decayed granite uh, walkway. Yes, uh-huh. <clears throat> what was it, and where do you get it? Uh, there are several brands. It's like a, uh, it's like a, oh, sort of a polymer. It's, uh, you know, not shiny and ugly, uh, but there's, it's sold under several different names. I buy it from Stone and Soil Depot, and they've got like five or six locations now, and uh, I usually visit the one out on I-10, but I'm pretty sure they've got it at all their locations. Now, okay. that's what I use where, you know, where I want it to still be a little bit soft, so to speak. If I'm doing a whole bunch of it and I want it to really set up pretty, you know, pretty firmly, uh, it's, it's cheaper, a lot cheaper to go with the dry Portland cement and put like, oh, one big heaping shovel full to a wheelbarrow full of decayed granite and you just mix it up and put it down and it will, it doesn't, you won't see the cement. It doesn't look like mortar or concrete, but that really locks it in place. But, uh, where I'm, uh, oh, like putting the, uh, the decayed granite between flagstones or where I want a, a walkway that, that, you know, doesn't have quite such a crust to it. Uh, the uh, and I'll, I'll look. In fact, I'll try to look this evening because I've got a gallon of it sitting on my front porch, waiting to be used. As a matter of fact, but uh, it, it's just a polymeric material, mm-hmm. and uh, Stone and Soil Depot is where I purchase it. Okay. Well, I also have a problem with tracking in little kind of grape nut sized stone into the house. Yes, and I think the <clears throat> the liquid is going to do a lot better for you than the than the Portland cement would there. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Always a pleasure. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Ah, let's just go ahead and take one more phone call. That would be Patty. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I wanted to ask you about potatoes. I bought some uh-huh. seed potatoes, and okay. I wanted to cut them and plant them. Uh, where I wanted to plant them was in a bin. Uh, I, I usually have raised beds, but I've run out of room. <laughs> and so I wanted to put them in a bin. And sure. that bin has almost all, it's its pretty much compost. Uh, okay. And wanted to know if I could plant them in there. Uh, when when you stick your hand down into the soil, does it still feel hot or does it feel same temperature as it would in your no, garden soil? No, not at all. It's not hot. Okay. You can do just fine planting in there. You can do just fine. How big is how big has this bin? Oh, gosh. it's Just approximately. A couple of feet wide. Okay, feet if wide, you've got, probably. yeah, it's a pretty two, big Yeah, to twenty-four to twenty-six inches, you're gonna have room to put about five uh, potato plants in there. Okay, and how long do I wait after I cut them? Um, what I do is, uh, and you know, you want to cut them. You want to try to leave at least two eyes in each little section that you cut. And I'll sit there with my knife. I'll cut them and just drop them into. Sometimes they use wood ashes. Sometimes they use the powdered rock phosphate, like we use for tomatoes. But I'll just drop the cut pieces in there and let it coat those, uh, you know, the cut edges, which will be a little moist, a little bit sticky. And then I put them right in the ground. I don't wait at all. I mean, I'm. I've got a real neat little device. Um, 
And if you've never seen one, I'd encourage you to take a look at it. It's called a Maxbit, M-A-X-B-I-T. It's a heavy-duty, uh, it's made out of steel, and you put it on an electric drill, or a battery-powered drill in my case, and you can either put it directly in there or else you can get an extender that's about 24 inches long. And when I was planting plants uh, last spring, uh, I walked along, you know, and you just you squeeze the trigger on your drill, and this thing makes a nice little hole in the ground. And I think I created like 60 holes for potatoes in under five minutes. <laughs> and then I wow. just walk along, and I, I just drop that cut piece of potato in. I don't pay too much attention whether it's upside down or right side up. And um, it should not take you a long time to do. But uh, I, I'll tell you... Anybody is looking to speed it up, and you may not be doing enough that it really would make a difference. But uh, there are two types of little digging tools that you would put on a drill. One of them is an auger. It looks like these things to use to drill holes for telephone poles. Do not ever use that because if you hit a rock or hit a root or something like that, your drill will jerk to where you know could practically break your wrist. But uh, this little this this little steel thing called the the max bit. Some someone very clever designed it because that doesn't ever happen and it's uh it, it doesn't ever jerk or spin and it's uh i don't know it just sure makes the job go in a hurry for anybody out there that's that's looking to plant a bunch of plants i use them planting ground covers and things like that too i just i love labor saving devices not because i mind the work but because it makes the job go so much faster and there's always another job waiting in my garden <laughs> as soon as i finish one thing there's something else needs to be done Sure. Well, I like your method with uh, planting them right away. And you said it was rock phosphate because I do have that. Yeah, absolutely. Just roll them in that. Uh, okay. Yeah, just just roll them in that and um, and do go I ahead and plant them immediately. Them? Do I need to mound them after they start growing a little bit? You know, I have tried both. They call it banking is what they talk call it if you read about it in the books. And I've tried it both ways. Um, I have never gotten more potatoes by banking them. But the one thing that it does help with, you know, your potatoes form pretty close to the surface. And if that potato is actually up, the developing potato, if it's up where the sun hits it, it starts developing chlorophyll. You start getting a green pigment in there, and that potato is not real good to eat. So, you know, some years I'll just plant them, and then I'll go through with a little bit of mulch when they, you know, after a few weeks when they start producing the potatoes. Other times, if I've, you know, got the time to do it, I'll just go down that roll with a broad shovel and just, you know, kind of bank the soil up at like what you read about in the in the books. I've never found that it makes any difference in the number or the quality of the potatoes, but uh, it sure keeps the sun off of them and makes 100% of them good edible potatoes. I see. And uh, I guess I didn't ask, how deep do I plant those? Uh, I plant mine where they've got maybe an inch of soil over the top. Oh, okay. Okay. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not out there with a measuring stick. If it's in some cases, it may be half an inch. In some cases, it may be an inch and a half. But approximately an inch of soil over the top, they will come up regardless uh, of how you do it. And there's one thing you can plant a little early because if they freeze down, they'll come right back out again. Uh, if they freeze down two or three times, then the results aren't so good. But uh, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'll have time to plant mine this week. But uh, the people who plant by the moon signs will tell you that, uh, you know, by next weekend, it's going to be a great time to be putting them in the ground. So you do it whenever it's convenient for you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bob. You have a wonderful day. 
Great questions. Thank you for the call. You do the Thank same. Thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Let's talk for a minute about the tank depot. <clears throat> you know, James was talking about how starting those seeds out, he loves having a rainwater to do it with. And rainwater is such an easy thing. I mean, as long as you got gutters on your home. If you don't have gutters, then it may be, you know, a little work, a little money to get ready to collect rainwater. But uh, rainwater catchment is just such an easy thing, and it gives you such good quality water for the garden. Or if you want to go all the way to a drinking water, a simple UV filter will make that possible. But Tank Depot is where you're going to find the tanks. It's where you're going to find the accessories for rainwater catchment. But that's not all the Tank Depot has. They've got chemical storage tanks. They've got transfer tanks for the back of your pickup truck, open-top tanks, bait tanks. If it's a tank... You'll find it at the Tank Depot, and the quality is so much better than what you see sitting out on the road in front of the box stores. The quality is better. The prices are fantastic on bigger tanks. They can certainly deliver for you if you need it. I just love talking about the Tank Depot because of their quality, their prices, their selection. You can check them out online today at tank-depot.com. Tomorrow, if you like, you can go see them. Their retail sales yard is uh, located on Southeast Loop 410, just south of Rigsby Avenue. You remember that name, the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to garden. There's actually one open line if you want to grab it. <laughs> that been one for a while. No, there's not. Sorry, Robert just grabbed it. It's going to be Megan and Bill and Alan and Robert. And we start with Megan. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm good. I have a couple of questions. I live out okay. in the country, and um, I have five acres of Klein grass that uh-huh. we've pretty much just let over the past many years it's just taken care of itself but uh last year we allowed someone to come cut hay and that's what i'm going to continue to do so i wanted to know how to care for that the kr blue stem is creeping in and my husband had ordered um some clover so i have about 50 pounds of clover i know it's too late to put it out this year right uh, but i wondered if that Anyway, if you could tell me how to take care of that organically and still cut hay a couple of times a year. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, the, and the only way you'll ever deal with KR Blue Stem is just keep your keep your climb grass healthy enough that it will choke it out. And uh, right. cover cropping with something like clover is wonderful. Uh, be sure you store that seed in a cool place until next fall. Um, would be wonderful. You never want to put it in the freezer, but it would it would love to stay. Uh, semi-refrigerated it, it just you know it's going to still be good but just if you want it the highest germination possible but uh, okay. the things that you know do you have irrigation uh, on that Klein grass are you able to irrigate no. it okay no. that's going to be that's going to be one of your limiting factors as to uh, how frequently you can cut I mean there will be years that you'll get four cuttings off of it and there'll be years okay. that you'll get one but uh I would recommend, uh, at, at a very minimum, treat it with uh, molasses. Uh, every time you cut, go back in and follow it up with a liquid molasses, probably a feed-grade molasses. It even has a little bit of urea in it. The rate is about five gallons per acre, which means it's a very, very inexpensive thing to do. And uh, 
a lot of people find that that's really all they need to do to continue to produce pretty good hay. If you want a okay. bigger volume and a good quality, there are some uh, uh, some organic fertilizers out there now that are actually uh, no more expensive and in many cases somewhat less expensive than the chemical or synthetic stuff that kind of messes up your soil. Um, you're out in the country. Which direction out in the country? Which way? Uh, which way are you? San Antonio, both. I would uh, I would consider talking to Fred Morales at Morales Feed. Uh, they've got a location there in Divine that's not too terribly far from you, yeah. and uh, he he has a quality poultry uh, litter product that is less expensive than the synthetic stuff, and uh, he could actually and if you want to do this next fall, take your clover seed to him and say, hey Fred, blend this with the fertilizer, and he has a blender where he actually will blend the cover crop seed in with the fertilizer, and you can either pick fertilizer from him, he will load it into a uh, spreader and deliver it to you, and all you do is tow it around and put it out and take the spreader back to him, or or if you want him to, he'll actually do the spreading. Just depends on how much time you have. But uh, it's just uh, with with getting organics now as cheaper cheaper than the synthetic stuff. It's just real easy to put some pretty good nutrition out there. And uh, um, combination of uh, molasses and fertilizer, uh, your grass would do extremely well. Now you got to figure out how to do a real good rain dance. And <laughs> when yeah, you can, when yeah. you can figure out how to get the water going when we need it, that's gonna be that's that's gonna be your only limiting factor, Megan. But uh, uh, if if it's not in the budget to do fertilizer, the molasses will very definitely give you a lot of help. Um, if if you had planned to fertilize anyway, just be sure and go with the organic because it's just as inexpensive and it will build your soil and do a whole lot more the synthetic fertilizers you're lucky if your crop gets 10 to 15 percent of the fertilizer your organic fertilizers uh your plants are going to get a hundred percent so even though the numbers may be lower you're actually putting more nutrition in the soil you get more out of a 432 fertilizer than you would out of a 2100 and the stuff that your plants don't use the other 85 to 90 percent of it that's one of the worst pollutants in the world so uh yeah I'm just I'm such a fan of Fred Morales because of the services he's offering now. Now there if if you have a way to do it yourself, um you could also consider going somewhere like Medina Agriculture over in Hondo and Stuart has it in thousand pound totes, which makes it pretty pretty reasonable. He adds a few more things to it. In fact, Fred also can uh, provide you with Medina fertilizer and thousand-pound totes, but it's a little more expensive than just your basic basic poultry litter fertilizer. So, you know, just comes down to what's in the budget because either one of them are going to help you grow a good crop of Klein grass and help choke out that blasted KR blue stem. Okay, and um, one other question: um, I have we have some fruit trees. And we have some shade trees, and the uh-huh. fruit and about five of the shade trees are about five. We planted them about five years ago, and uh-huh. then I have five trees that we planted a year ago, December. And um, I would like to put in a drip. Uh, uh-huh. And I heard y'all talking about drip yesterday and how you need to be able to cut it off because it doesn't soak all the. What what was that again? I think you and Howard well, were having a discussion. Yeah, we. You just you need to be able to control the watering. You know, um, you will have a 
choice. That's not a huge number of trees to have to water, so you can just do it totally manually if you want to. Or you can put, you know, a basic sprinkler controller on there so that it works automatically. But what a lot of people, unfortunately, do is they set it to water too often, and they, you know, don't forget to cut it way back in the winter. They forget to cut it way back in the winter months, and things Uh. just stay drastically wet. So um, the problem is not so much the drip, it's the controller. Uh, whether it's manual or whether it's automatic, and uh, just just pay attention to that. Now, all drip systems, whether you're using the individual emitters or whether you're using the what they call inline drip, it's a tube with little holes all mm-hmm. up and mm-hmm. down it. Um, it is much slower as far as putting the uh, uh, water out. So, if you were you know using a an regular sprinkler type irrigation and you ran it for an hour you're probably going to have to run your drip for three or four hours to put out the same amount of water what i do and i do this in my own garden i have mainly inline drip and uh uh what i will do is put like just one little section where there's one of little emitters I'll just put a glass jar underneath there, and that way I can run and see, and I can just let it run until it's, uh, you know, put about an inch of water down, or in the case of trees, I would want to put two to three inches of water down. Pay attention, I'll know how long it needs to run each time. Okay, so two to three inches um, for the trees? Yeah, and, uh, and on other, most of the... Um, and I realize it changes with the weather. Well, it changes with the weather and changes with the maturity of the trees. Your new fruit trees that you just planted, they're probably going to need it twice a week this spring. Your existing trees probably not going to need it more than every 10 to 14 days. And as you just pointed out, if it's really windy, if it's really warm, humidity is really low, you'll need to water a little bit more often because of what we call evapotranspiration. There's your new word for the day. Right. And so um, I probably won't get this drip in this year. So uh-huh. do you ha- uh, my husband and I would each had our opinions about what type of sprinkler to use. <laughs> Um, well, and I'm doing this by myself. Is do those rain train things? I know there's talk about don't get it on the leaves and all that. What's your, what is your thought about manual? Um, you know, I I'm big into water conservation because I serve on the groundwater district up in Kendall County where we don't have as much water as you do down south. Um, and you also have the advantage is you're not fighting calcium all the time, so you can pretty much you know, have your choice. I would never, and if you're doing the little individual emitters, I would never put one per tree because if something happens and one clogs up, you don't really realize it's clogged up until the tree starts looking bad. So I would put two or three of them around each tree. Uh, they're really easy to install and they're really inexpensive if you choose to use the individual emitters. If you use the inline drip, which is just your uh, half inch uh, tube with the, it, and it's not just a hole in it. It's got this very, I don't know how they can do them and still sell them so inexpensively, but there's this little thing inside that uh, maintains even pressure throughout the line. Each little indi- individual emitter has a, a little back to it that's uh, just amazing. You cut open a piece of it and look at it sometime. But uh, where you're using those... Um, I just do sort of a spiral, and I will make I'll make just an expanding 
spiral in effect where I've got like three rows of tubing from the trunk all the way out, maybe 18 inches from the trunk of the tree. And uh, I just have, you know, less than 10 fruit trees in my garden, and that's what I use. If I had the 15, 20, 25 trees like you do, and if I didn't have to deal with all the calcium, I probably would go with the individual emitters. Okay. And then just to get me through this year, just manual, I won't have a, a drip thing. Um, do you have, is there some kinds of sprinklers that are better than others? Can I run that rain train down in between the orchard trees where it travels, or is that not yeah. a good idea? Well, I like a, a sprinkler that makes large droplets as opposed to small and keeps them very close to the ground as opposed to spraying them up in the air. Beyond that, I'm not real familiar with the one you're speaking okay. of, but, but uh, big drops low to the ground is what I look for in a sprinkler. Okay. All right. Oh, uh, fertilizing uh-huh. these trees. What do I, how often and what do I use and... I would, you know, if you if you get a good dry granular organic fertilizer for that Klein field, I'd just, you know, set aside, uh, you know, a bunch of that to use. If you want to go out and buy something, uh, I use something like Medina's Growing Green. I figure for every inch of trunk diameter on your trees, I'm going to use a little less than a pound of fertilizer. Your new trees are probably an inch in diameter, so I'm going to put about a pound of fertilizer around them. Your four or five-year-old trees are maybe five inches in diameter, so I'm going to put five, six pounds of fertilizer around those. Okay, and how often do I do that? Four times a year. Okay, just so the beginning just of each starting season. Starting in the spring. Okay, beginning of each season. <laughs> yeah, the beginning, beginning of each season. You could use a liquid, which will be a little faster acting, but you've got a busy life, I can tell, and it's a whole lot better to use a dry than to plan to use a liquid and just not get around to it as often as you need to. Because yeah, you need, if yeah. you use the liquid, you need to do it a lot more often. And uh, reality tells me that using uh, uh, dry fertilizer about four times a year would probably be, uh, would fit your schedule best okay and that was the medina growing green or any good similar thing um the uh, nature's creation people make one they call premium lawn food that's alfalfa based that's excellent uh, maestro grow makes one uh, called texas tea that is excellent um i just know that probably the easiest one for you to find is going to be the medina growing green and it's one okay. that if you have the equipment to handle it you can go out and buy a you know 500 pound tote or something like that and be a lot cheaper than uh, you know getting it in 40 pound bags so whatever works in your world Okay. Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Megan. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. uh, Quick break here, and then it'll be Bill and Alan and Robert. I get to talk about Cedar Eater of Texas. I love the way the Cedar Eater of Texas works and all the good things they do to improve our hill country land. And, you know, I have to say, they they also do a lot of work in South Texas, clearing the Cinderas and things like that. I mean, they can do, I don't know how many miles. I bet they can do 25 miles of Cinderas in a day. And uh, how long is that going to take your your crew (laughs) If you're out there cutting it by hand. Uh, so Cedar Eater does have other services besides just cedar clearing, but uh, they are wonderful. They can do several acres a day of cedar clearing. The rougher the land, of course, the more slowly the machine moves. But they just do it in such an environmentally friendly fashion. The machine cuts the cedar off at ground level, grinds it into a nice mulch all in one operation. They can work right around your oaks and elms and mountain laurels and things that you want to save. If it's really tight, they'll just send in a hand clearing crew to cut 
that cedar up close to the trees, drag it out in the open, and then the machine turns it into a mulch. It is the most efficient, most environmentally friendly way I know. No bulldozing, no burning. They can work 365 days a year. <laughs> well, they can work any time of the year. I'm not sure they want to work on uh, Christmas, Easter, New Year's, those uh, holidays and things. But anyway, you're not limited by how dry it is. You're not limited by the temperature. You're only limited by how much land you've got to clear and how much you want the cedar eater to do for you. Been around a lot of years, done work for the Forest Service, the Department of the Highway Department, the Parks and Wildlife. A lot of smart people use the Cedar Eater of Texas, and you can learn more by giving them a call, 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, let's go right straight back to the phone lines. Bill is up first. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. How are you today, sir? Oh, just a gorgeous day out there. I was had a big big truck came in about seven this morning, so I got plenty of exercise early. And uh, that clear blue sky out there, it's just this is what winter should be like in Texas. And fortunately, they have raised the forecast temperatures later this week. Still gonna be chilly, but they've raised them several degrees, so things are looking better and better in my world. How about yours? It's just beautiful. Just just couldn't be better. We need to, we need some rain, but I'll, I'll take something like this any day. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Let's yeah. get that rain between six in the evening and six in the morning, and then uh, blue perfect. skies the rest of the time. Uh, hey, yeah, boy, that's what we'll order for this week. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Perfect. Uh, hey, Bob, uh, a couple of questions, real quick. Uh, we're we, uh, we're recent uh, transplants to the south side of Canyon Lake. Uh, just love it out here, but you know, having trouble with the with the lack of dirt thing uh so we're looking at uh doing some whiskey barrels uh okay is that can you be successful um growing in you know mostly ornamentals not not so much vegetables but but uh you certainly you certainly can uh whiskey barrels have gotten expensive um, it okay. used to be, if you want to know the story behind it, all those barrels come out of the Jack or Jack Daniels Distillery over in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and they used to do all of their bottling there in Lynchburg. Then they started shipping the barrels overseas. The Japanese consume a lot of their bourbon, and uh, so all of a sudden the supply of barrels went down by about 80%. And those barrels are not permanent. Uh, probably you're looking at five to seven years, those things will completely rot away. Not a big, yeah, not a big deal if... Uh, you know, if you're growing annuals or even perennials that you're going to replace every few years. But if you're, you know, if you're thinking of putting more permanent trees and shrubs and things in, um, five years from now, you may wish you'd chosen a different, <laughs> something different to plant in. Now, if, if it's an area where appearance isn't, you know, really concerned where people aren't going to see what it's planted in, uh, molasses tubs are heavy duty that are probably going to last you 15 or 20 years and very, very inexpensive. Um, if you are looking for something more decorative, uh, unfortunately, you're looking at higher prices if you, uh, 
you know, if you want the best, which is going to be your glazed uh, ceramics, which come mainly out of Asia these days. And those things, you know, they ought to, I, I would not do concrete pots because your concrete over time will get moist, will freeze, and will start to flake. But some of this glazed stuff coming out of Vietnam and China these days, uh, you know, it ought to last 50 years for you. So those are your choices for containers. You can also create raised beds and once again depending on the look you want uh, something like trex which is a synthetic deck wood um, you can do raised beds out of that that'll last you know indefinitely 10 20 30 years uh, i unfortunately i'm not crazy about trees treated wood both because of the chemicals and uh because of the fact that it rots out in about five years anyway. Uh, there hopefully in the near future there will be a retail location providing, uh, this wood that I just love. It's called Eco Vantage or Eco Prem wood. And it is a treated wood, but not chemically treated. It's a super kill dried wood. I just built a pretty good sized greenhouse and a deck out of it over here at Shades of Green. If you're going to ride by and take a look at it, uh, it's, okay. it's, it's the best wood I have ever used. I built a greenhouse at home out of it a couple of years ago, but it's a process that was developed in Finland back in 1939, and uh, so it's nothing new, but uh, it's it's dried to the point it's baked the carbohydrates out so termites don't go after it. Uh, it is actually seals the cellular surface of the wood, even when you cut it and drill it and all. Uh, they've had it in ground contact in East Texas for 30 years, no rotting. Pilings in swamps, 30 years, no rotting. It does not warm. I've got some 16-footers lying out there for my next project that have been out in the sun for three months, and they're still straight as an arrow. So uh, if you need a, any quantity of it, uh, call me at the nursery sometime. I'll put you in touch with their wholesale distributor here. And uh, they tell me that they're they're looking at hopefully having a retail outlet soon. It's about the same price as Trex. It's definitely more expensive than the junk you buy at uh, one of the box stores. But um, I, I guess the reason I'm going on and on about this is uh, your choice of materials to create you know, your containers for your plants, so to speak, you don't want it to come back and haunt you. And uh, it may be that you just want to do dry stack stone. Um, I use a lot of stone, you know, around my place because I've got a few hundred acres <laughs> to go pick it up from. But we've got places, you've got a stone and soil depot not terribly far from Canyon Lake. And uh, you can buy, you know, regular quarried stone or you can buy cut stone. I've got some raised beds that I use for a new vegetable gardening area that I just went out and got a pallet of their uh, six by six cut stone. And that's what I use to create my raised beds. They're beautiful. They should be good for the next 30 years. And uh, we're, they're heavy, but comparatively inexpensive. Yeah. Okay. Um, we had kind of thought about using or, or the possibility of using uh, like metal containers, like water troughs, things like that, would that not be advisable? They're going to rust out on you. They're going to rust out on you. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But Rubbermaid is making a big uh, water trough that, uh, you know, I've had one of those at these two labs lying at my feet here. Uh, That's their favorite summertime (laughs) haunt. I've probably had that thing for 10 or 12 years, and it's as good as the day I bought it. Uh, you You can use the galvanized troughs. Now, the galvanizing is going to be mildly toxic to the roots, but I've never seen it cause real severe problems. But even those things are going to rust out after a few years. So, uh, uh, you know, just just prepare and plan. Take your time getting ready, and then uh, then you'll do very well. Now, you said your recent transplant, where did you move from? 
Uh, we we came from uh, from the uh, east side of I thirty five over towards. Oh, okay. The uh, okay. You know, it's not like you're. You know, yeah. Yeah, that area. Was yeah. There. So absolutely. We, we my wife I, I thought it was too easy to dig a hole over there. So. <laughs> Well, it's uh, the other thing that you'll be dealing with is deer, unless your yard is well fenced. So when you get ready to make your plant selections, keep that in mind. And uh, yeah, if you yeah. if you need a list of plants that are, there are a handful of things that are deer proof and a lot of things that are deer resistant. So that's right, another right. thing you'll want to check out. I, I w- was thinking you meant you were coming from Minnesota or you know some foreign country like that, no, but both locals here. Um, that's very good. On, uh, on on blackberries do they do well in this area if you get the right ones they do very well unfortunately i've never found a thornless that does well here um Thorns probably the yeah probably the most common commonly used blackberry is called brassus it's the thorniest berry i've ever seen it's a sweet berry but a relatively small berry my favorite blackberry it's a little hard to find sometimes but it's called roseboro it's also a thorny blackberry, but it's a big berry. It's a sweet berry, and, you know, I think my employees around here think I must be a terrible grower because I don't bring very many of them in, but it's because I stand there and eat about the first 20 or 30 I pick and then start putting them in the bucket. So if you find Roseboro, it's, that's going to be my favorite. Um, Okay. Blackberries okay. do well. They they have a little bit different pruning cycle and all. So when you get ready to do that, I won't take the time right now since uh, right, Alan right. and Robert and everybody's waiting. But uh, uh, okay. call me again and I'll I'll tell you about the the care and culture of blackberries. And in the meantime, just uh, you'll never have too many areas to plant. So uh, decide carefully and call me if I can be of further assistance. Okay, I appreciate it. I appreciate your help, Bob. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Have a great Always. day. You do the same, Bill. Thank you, sir. All right, Alan is up next. Good morning, Alan. Yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, we're growing a we got an onion farm in Skidmore, and uh, okay, we got. I think the dirt doctor called a couple of weeks ago about it. It's a multiplying uh-huh. onion. Yes, sir. Um, are you familiar with the scientific name? We named it after our grandfather, uh, Grandpa <laughs> Brown's multiplying onion, because we grew them when I was a kid. Uh, they are an they are an allium. Uh, the genus is A L L I U M. Um, there are a number of different species in there. I want to say allium sativum. That's just off the top of my head. But uh, the a good you know a, a good place to start is just as an allium. Alliums include some of your garlics and pretty much all of your onions. Uh, the thing that sets your multiplying onion apart is just the uh, uh, its growth habit and the way we tend to culture it, and uh, I, I like your applied name. <laughs> I yeah. think, uh, and and if you were going to write it down scientifically, since it is probably a hybrid, you would put allium. You would put an X, you know, f- uh, for a cross, and then uh, just just put your uh, would be called the clonal name, which is Grandpa's. What did you call it, Grandpa's? What now? Grandpa Brown's multiplying onion. Grandpa Brown's Multiplying Onion. (laughs) If you ever read any of the old seed catalogs, uh, people had much more, uh, much more imaginative. I think my favorite on tomatoes is uh, Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato. So, uh, Grandpa Brown's Multiplying Onion sounds like a real good start there. Yeah, these things are pretty. I can't find pretty unique. I mean, the seeds they go to bolt year round, and they they Uh they don't make viable seed, and they have to be planted by sets. 
Yes, and sir. And me and my daughter started growing them. She wants to sell them to nurseries <laughs> and stuff. So right now we're just supplying a local nursery. But uh, sure. But anyways, we started with seven of the original strand. Now we have about fifty thousand of them. Oh wow! I so guess you're into multiplying. On, yeah, your your onions have definitely multiplied for you. So, uh, well, I, you know, my my congratulations to her for her desire to share and uh, and learn a little bit about business at the same time. You guys are modern day hero in my in my feelings. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. But uh, no, right. if you just. If you just if she wants to put a name on them, just put uh, Allium X and then put uh, Grandpa Brown's multiplying onion, and uh, you'll be as close as you're going to get. All righty. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the call, Alan. Good luck with your project and her project. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Certainly. All right. Let me get a quick break here. Robert and Alonso will be up next. I get to talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And uh, again, people say, well, why do you talk about a roofing company on a plant show? It's called Peace of Mind. And I just laugh with all the ads that I hear on the radio these days for the roofing companies. And yeah, they're going to come out and fix your roof when it wears out. And yeah, they're going to replace that roof. Yeah, a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof, you just stop thinking about your roof because it's a lifetime quality roof. And barring a misfortune like having a truck run into it, which happened to us, you won't ever have to call them back. I mean, they, our roof here at Shades of Green stood up to baseball size hail and just incredible. Maybe if you got up there on your hands and knees, you might find a tiny little dent here and there, but man, it doesn't tear up even giant hail doesn't bother Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof. And then, of course, you've got additional fire protection more than one way. You've got a roof that's going to save you money on your energy bill. Your insurance company is almost certainly going to give you a discount on your roof because they know how good it is. And that's that peace of mind that I keep talking about. And you've got lots of choices. It's all the same great metal, but lots of different looks. You can have a look that looks like standing seam or slate or ceramic tile. There's so many choices and many different uh, colors as well. Happen to have a red roof on my home, which is a tribute to uh, an old uncle that I inherited the property from that always wanted a red roof on the house. I love Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and I think you will as well. Give them a call to learn more. 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right. Chris tells me Alonzo dropped off, so it's going to be Robert number one, Judy, Robert number two, and Mike. So uh, the Robert that just is about to hear a click on your phone line, you're the gentleman I'm talking to right now. Good morning. Good morning, Herr Webster. Guten Morgen. Wie geht es Ihnen? Wie geht's? I learned this German when I was at an American high school in Berlin, Germany. I well, got it. good for you. You know, I learned a little German a few years ago before I had the pleasure of going over to that part of the world, and it's uh, it's it's stuck in my mind. When I learned a little bit of Italian, it totally destroyed my Spanish. So uh, anyway, so what's going on in your garden today, Mr. Robert? Yes, sir. Um, I love your show. Thank you. Generation listener. I'm calling from Prospect Hill on the okay. North Lake. Yeah. I have a berm I created for the past five years in the back of the lot. It's mm-hmm. about uh, 60 yards. I made a, a, a three-foot high berm of dirt and okay. cuttings and uh, leaves and what have you. Okay. And I'm going to plant potatoes on it. Is that possible? Sounds, 
Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Right it, on, uh, right. Have uh, have the leaves and, uh, and clippings oh. and things, have they largely yeah. broken down? Are they fairly well yes, composted? Sir. Yeah. Yes, you sir. grow beautiful. You'll grow beautiful potatoes in a berm oh. like that. I asked the guy that uh, Chris is he on is he on yeah. today? <laughs> yeah, he's about- <laughs> <laughs> See, you sound like you have a good sense of humor. You're you're Chris's victim if you call in with a sense of humor because he's gonna he's gonna tease you a bit. But uh, just tell him just just tell him he'll be jealous of your French fries here a little bit later this summer. But uh, no, Pom you'll Fritz. you'll do fine if you're Pom if you're Fritz. looking to. I'm sorry, Pom Fritz. Oh, yeah, yeah, old. But um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, you've got a choice. You can grow uh, if you want. If you like new potatoes, uh, you can get one of the red varieties, uh, red Pontiac or something like that. If you want a big white potato, you can grow white Lasota or something. Um, and then there's okay. some of the, you know, things like Yukon Gold and all. But yeah, we're coming right up. In fact, where you are, you could probably plant your potatoes this week. So, okay, that's my just, question. Do I go? Yeah. To, do I go to the grocery store and buy? No. Separate, no. like maybe four of each, or do I buy no. a bag of? Okay, you you go you go to a nursery, uh, and nursery. and buy as you know one or a dozen or however many you want. See, here's the thing about grocery stores, and um, they don't want the potatoes sprouting in the bins. And right. some grocery stores that I don't shop at, um, <laughs> they treat them chemically. Some of the stores that I shop at, they do a flash freeze. They will take those potatoes, and I'm not sure whether they hit them with liquid nitrogen or something, but uh, thank God there are no chemicals involved. But they actually just flash freeze them to where they kill the eyes so that they don't sprout. Um, so the stuff that you buy at the grocery store is probably never going to come up if you put that in your garden. Uh, when okay. you go to a good nursery, you'll buy what they call literally seed potatoes. They're very inexpensive. And uh, you're going to cut them up as where you have a couple of eyes uh, in each each little piece that you make. And uh, just a good sharp knife. I either roll them in wood ashes or roll them in rock phosphate. Sort of cauterizes that cut surface. And uh, it helps, with the, helps them root and get started. Plant them about roughly an inch deep down in your berm. And um, you can plant them in rows or you can just kind of plant them at random. And uh, the way the way they grow after just a few weeks, if you were to take your finger and start probing around the base of the plant, you'll actually feel the little developing potatoes. And uh, if you like new potatoes, you let them get up to golf ball size and then just go in and take two or three of them off each plant, and you'll have enough to feed your family. And uh, you can do this fairly often. Um, if you just leave them in place uh, until, you know, until the tops die and fall over in the summer and you dig, you'll have some pretty good sized potatoes uh, bigger on the whites than on the reds but uh, you'll have a the summer it'll happen up until it gets hot throughout the spring you'll have these little potatoes that that okay. you can either just leave them to grow or you can just like i say go probe around the base and just you know harvest a few of them as new potatoes if you oh. don't do that you'll have a lot more big potatoes by summertime but you know i'll on a typical year i probably will take four to six new potatoes off every plant and then come june or so when the top starts to die and i dig those plants i'll have from three to five big potatoes down at the base and considering that i've already picked off four to six new potatoes uh, you get a lot of potatoes from a single plant but uh it's a pretty good essen how much watering do i have to do throughout if, once um, I plant them? 
realize that that berm dairy is going to drain more quickly than just putting them in a flat area. So you're probably going to water twice a week. Lock Hill feed has a lot of straw. It's uh-huh. like twelve dollars a bale. A bale of hay. Uh huh. Can I use hay in there too? Hay, I would be very careful of. Straw, you probably will be okay. But uh, most hay growers, and I'm afraid the percentage is pretty high, they spray their hay with some pretty toxic stuff to uh, keep the grass burrs down. And unfortunately, one of the things they use is a persistent chemical called picloram that just doesn't go away, and it will kill everything you put it around. So if you can find alfalfa, usually is much less sprayed, and they do not use the picloram on it. Unfortunately, it's a little more expensive. Or if you happen to know somebody that's raising their own hay and uh, you know that it has not been uh, sprayed with weed killers, then uh, it's just fine to use. But I'm going to tell you that a high percentage of the hay, hay that you buy these days uh, is picloram treated. And unfortunately, um, it uh, passes through the cow or the horse and the, the bad chemical stays in the manure. So be very carefully if you're putting manure in the soil to be sure because... Uh, uh, there's some companies, some big companies out there, practically bankrupted themselves by not being carefully careful with their manure selection. Yeah, they were they were selling compost, was killing stuff everywhere people put it. So uh, it just you know it, it just pays to be cautious in today's world. But what you get out of your own garden is going to be cleaner and tastier and better than anything you can buy in a store. So go for it. Uh, shades of green. Do you sell the potatoes? Yes, we have we have them in stock. Right but on. You don't necessarily need to drive from Elmendorf. No, you can I, probably okay. Okay, no. Yeah. Okay. And you do sell the straw? No, we don't sell straw. Um, okay, okay. What what I would tend to use would be more, you know, like a mulch material, or if oh, you know mulch. a tree trimmer, somebody like that. Just tell them instead of going to pay to dump that. Okay, yeah. I, have, I have mulch already. Yeah, just use that instead of hay. Okay, Bob. All this is good. Danke schön. Bitte schön. Bitte schön, Robert. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk again soon. And uh, let's see. And you keep me posted on how the potatoes do. I'll look forward to hearing. Thank you. Let's, you're welcome. Let's go ahead and talk to Judy. Good morning, Judy. Hi, good morning. Uh, good I morning. Question. The name of the gardenia for South Texas. <laughs> My favorite gardenia for this area is called August Beauty. Um, It's August Beauty. Now it blooms off and on all summer. You don't have to wait till August to get the uh, to get the flowers. Probably the heaviest bloom, but uh, it's not as big as the mystery or you know a few of them. But August Beauty I find to be the hardiest gardenia and probably the best bloomer. Now it still wants good soil. It still would be happiest if you planted it where it got sun in the morning and shade in the afternoon. But uh, my, that's my favorite gardenia. It's August Beauty. That's all I needed to know. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Judy. Thanks for the call today. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let me do a break, and then it'll be Robert and Mike, and we'll go on from there. I'm going to talk about the freeze miser and talk about Talk about a neat device. Uh, invented over in Seguin, by the way. That's where the engineers uh, developed it and patented it. So it comes from right here, close by, made in with parts, all manufactured here in Texas, and an absolutely amazing device. The Freeze Miser has no batteries, no wires, but it's a device you put on a water hydrant, and then you turn the water on. 
Um, nothing happens. <laughs> nothing comes out. But if we get a cold night and that temperature drops down and the water in the hydrant starts getting really cold, it doesn't measure air temperature. It measures water temperature. And if that water gets down close to the freezing point, it automatically starts dripping your hydrant. As soon as it warms up, it stops dripping. So I put on some of my hydrants, I just put the freeze miser on, leave it on all winter, and take it off in the spring. Now, on hydrants that I'm going to be using uh, a hose regularly, I put a Y valve on there. I put the freeze miser on one side, the hose on the other side, turn the water on, and just use the little uh, on-off thing on the uh, on the Y valve to turn my hose on and off. And that way, I'm not putting it on and off and on and off, but I'm sure not worrying about my my uh, faucet freezing. I have the same thing on my well. Uh, you can use a Y valve. Uh, in fact, I'll be doing this with my business business partner a little later this week where she's had a uh, cattle water trough that uh, they go through a lot of uh, effort to keep that that float valve from freezing well you just put a y valve on the float valve you put the freeze miser on one side your y valve on the other side and any water that comes out of the freeze miser goes into the tank so you don't waste a drop of water freeze miser is absolutely amazing you're not going to find them in the box stores you can actually order online if you want to go to freeze miser m-i-f-c-r.com but you'll also find that they're sold by most independent hardware stores and certainly by the finer nurse in the area. It's the Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's Robert and Mike and Ryan and Ron and Robert is up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. I, I now understand when I when Chris answered, he said that you didn't want to hear from any Roberts this morning. <laughs> Turns out I'm the second to last three calls. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm blessed with people around me with a sense of humor, as you well know. So he uh, he, he's, he's wonderful, yeah. Uh, so I want to apologize in advance because i got several questions. And as you know, Bob, I've never been accused of being diplomatic. Please, please forgive me if I've added my reputation in this regard. Well, yeah, it's, it's a good reputation, Robert. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll, maybe we'll get through them all. Okay. So just to recap, recap very quickly for the radio audience, I was very worried about my two, two of my three big live oaks, two of right. which are heritage oaks, one in front, one uh-huh. in back. And Dave, you, you referred me to David. He was kind enough to uh, give me the names of three arborists that he recommended here in, in um, Austin. And two have seen the trees. And the good news is they kind of confirmed what uh, uh, David said because he, he reminded me that live oaks can look their worst at this time of year. Absolutely. But, um, the one in front, or one of the pair in front that I was really worried about, is surrounded by a big con- uh, circular concrete drive, and then there's, uh-huh. there's gravel underneath the tree where there's the open part of the U, if you will, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so um, uh, I was worried that it just wasn't getting enough water because mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, it's just, there's no place for the water to, to soak through. But anyway, um, uh, he. Uh, one of the two arborists uh, said, and this is, I'm telling you this because I think it might be interesting to your audience, and I did not understand this. Native trees, as opposed to planted trees, kind of look differently um, from the, one looks differently from the other um, mm-hmm. uh, at 
at a, any given time of year. So in other words, the native trees may lose their leaves first or, or they may not be as heavy, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. But that, well, uh, and a lot of that too, Robert, a lot of that depends on the seed source because uh, uh, chances are your bigger tree growers, number one, they're not located in Austin, and then number one, they're not buying seed from anybody in the Austin area. And, you know, just through the process uh, of a slow evolution so to speak you're you're going to get a little more genetic diversity and and you know that's exactly the point the tree that is brought in uh doesn't have you know the same <laughs> it, it hasn't been inbred enough <laughs> i'm thinking of a terrible joke that i won't tell on the air even though it's clean but uh um you know it, it hasn't been inbred and and so it doesn't have all the same genetics like some areas of the country seem to have we'll just leave it at that but uh and consequently you do get some variation from tree to tree so you know that that is absolutely you know absolutely to be expected and very very accurate and same things, it's not just oak trees, it's cypress trees, it's elm trees, it's uh, any trees that have grown for many years over a wide geographic area, you're very definitely going to have little pockets that uh, have different genomes. Okay, okay. Uh, so with respect to these trees in front, I was concerned that the gravel might be too heavy mm-hmm. uh, because I know the con- concrete is. And he didn't seem to think so. We did recommend removing it and putting... Uh, two to three inches, I think he said compost. I hope it wasn't uh, 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 mulch. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, I'll, I can sort that out. And sure. then uh, uh, air spade around those two trees that are right together. As you may uh-huh. remember, I've, I've done that already, but he didn't think it was enough. And he also okay. went to look for, for roots, you know. Uh, yeah, girdling roots. roots and things. Yeah. So, so we'll probably do that. Now, the the tree in back is that one that leans very heavily. You probably remember mm-hmm. uh, you, I called you about, it about four years ago when we moved in. But um, the other arborist recommended to remove all of the grass around the base of the tree out about 18 inches. And, just, and it, that made enormous sense to me because having grass come right up to the tree and covering those roots, which could be exposed, is kind of like piling sure. mulch up around them, right? Yeah, so we've done yeah. that. Now, confusingly, she indic- she thought it would be a good idea to put uh, uh, two to three inches of hardwood bark uh, mulch uh, on mm-hmm. on the area where we'd remove the grass. Now that that doesn't make sense to me, so I thought I'd bounce that off of you. Well, you know, you have to look at what mulches do. Mulches are going to cool the soil, which is not really essential where you've already got a tree shading the area, but um, they're going to suppress weeds. They're going to, you know, kind of reduce the regrowth of any grass into that area. Uh, their slow decomposition is going to add a little bit of uh, material to the soil. I just don't like bare dirt. And um, because it will grow weeds, it will dry out faster. Now, uh, again, I would certainly not want to mound the bark up against the trunk, but uh, as far as the, just anything that covers bare dirt is going to, you know, retain a little bit more moisture and it's going to suppress weeds. And that's why Mother yeah. Nature invented weeds, so to speak, is to keep the soil from eroding. So I don't know that it's a bad idea, but if you prefer well, decayed granite, you could use that, or you could build a, you know, a little you know, a deck around that tree if you wanted to for whatever purpose. And uh, um, 
I understand those points that you just made, but there will be a lot of exposed roots there. Sure. Yeah. But it's okay for them to be on top of it for the for the decayed granite or the uh, mulch to be on top of the roots. Absolutely, absolutely. Realize that uh, those roots have bark on them, just like the trunk and limbs of the tree do. And the thing that's important to roots is oxygen. I mean, believe it or not, beyond a certain point, water is secondary. And um, the fastest way to kill a tree is to suffocate it. Because, you know, everybody thinks, well, well, plants take in, in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Well, that happens above the ground where you have chlorophyll. But below the ground, those roots are just like you and I. We breathe in oxygen, and if we don't have a good oxygen supply, we're not very healthy. So um, when you're dealing with a loose material like bark, like a good mulch, like decayed granite, like many different things, or um, you're dealing with the loose material, you got plenty of oxygen down there, and the tree roots are going to be very happy. And it's not holding uh, uh, moisture there. That's that's the point I miss, and I understand yep, that. Yeah, and and moisture moisture only hurts if it's so extreme that it's driving the oxygen out of the soil. Uh, I frequently, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about using perlite to root cuttings, and your commercial grower is going to water that perlite in effect uh, six times an hour uh, throughout uh, all the sunny hours of the day. So let's say that's getting watered 50 times a day, and yet the plants thrive, the cuttings they're rooting thrive, because there's also plenty of oxygen. The only time water becomes an issue is if it is... uh, you know, if it is there so densely in effect that it drives the oxygen out of the soil. It's not the water that hurts, it's the lack of oxygen. Right. Now, the other thing she said that, I, again, I want to bounce off of you, right now we're we're fertilizing with Viotrac, um organic mm-hmm. uh, chicken uh, yeah. fertilizer twice a year and compost once a year and molasses once a year and cornmeal uh-huh. once or twice a year. So uh, she said... Just don't put anything on it except except a good compost, uh, organic compost. Um, uh, how do you feel about that? Well, um, I kind of feel like uh, knowing a bit about your and Susie's dietary habits, you like a little variety in what you eat. You don't want the same exact thing all the time, and you want something that is fairly nutritious. Um yeah, nature nature basically feeds things with compost. They grow slowly, but they grow in a healthy fashion. Um, when you start providing the tree with, uh, you know, it's like, do you want a skinny dog or do you want a dog that's, you know, get, got a healthy weight to it? Um, I You will get more growth out of the tree. You will certainly... Um, feed and help the microbes in the soil by using some molasses and and by using a good poultry litter fertilizer and uh and so often the compost that you get may have come from a different part of the country or even a different part of the state and it may not have the same blend of trace uh minerals trace elements that uh the trees would really like in the austin area so uh i'm i'm all in favor of using you know a good organic fertilizer and uh vitrax you know it it doesn't have all the added things that something like the medina fertilizer has but it certainly brings a good healthy supply of nitrogen and a relatively broad mineral package just depending on what the chickens were eating so uh um, 
Do you have to use it? No. Will it make your trees grow a little faster, stay a little thicker, and uh, you know probably be a little bit greener? Yeah. If you use something beyond compost, you'll accomplish the tree will be happier, so to speak. So I, I can't say she's absolutely wrong, but I, I would say she's approximately right. <laughs> I guess would be well, the way to put I, it. I, I don't think we would. In any case, stop with the cornmeal and the molasses. Oh no, absolutely they, not. They have their absolutely own, not. They have their own purposes, and yeah. I, and what you're saying uh, is kind of what we've been doing. So we'll just stay with it. And yeah. the last quick question is uh, watering. You know, I use my five-gallon uh, buckets with holes drilled in the bottom to do it. But mm-hmm. I was trying to get an idea about how much water to put down in gallons and and and. The, the other um, barber said one ten gallons per inch of trunk, if I remember correctly. Does that sound right to you? And if so, is that diameter or circumference? <laughs> That's it's diameter, but um, you know those trees really don't need a lot of help from you unless we have a prolonged dry spell. Exactly. Um, well, that's what he said. Yeah. And th- it's one thing that that we've learned um, that you know I always thought all that water uptake took out a, uptake took place out around the drip line. But what we're learning is while a lot of nutrient uptake takes place around the drip line, most of your liquid uptake occurs within you know ten or fifteen feet of the trunk. So um, I, you know all I can tell you is if a tree needs water there's no such thing as too much water you you know you want to give it uh, the equivalent of a 5 inch rain that would make the tree really really happy but unless we go for 3 or 4 months without rain on an established tree i doubt that you really need to be that concerned about it uh new trees absolutely they're going to take a lot more water to get those roots established but we're talking trees that are been there for a lot of years robert so um, and Austin seems to get a little bit more rain than you were used to in Bernie, so I'm not thinking you're likely to have to supplement your watering at all most of the time. Well, my rule has been uh, if we haven't had uh, two inches of rain within a preceding, you know, four to six weeks, then then I do the watering. But other than that, we don't. Well, I, you know, I think you probably do just about as well if you said two inches rain within the past four to six months. Um, those trees are, trees are a lot, established oaks are a lot tougher than most people give them credit because, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're certainly not going to hurt anything, but I think you're doing a little bit more than you need to. Okay, great. All right. Well, that's, Well, it's uh, questions that I think everyone will benefit from. So uh, you wish your bride a very, very happy Valentine's Day for me and give her a big hug and tell her we'll get together one of these days. Absolutely. We'll do that and best of the garden girls. Thank you so much, Robert. Really appreciate it. Bye. All right. uh, Let's get a break done here, and then we'll be back to Mike and Ryan and moving through. I get to talk about Morales feed, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things. uh, Fred has uh, the Vitrac fertilizers and other products as well in bulk and in in bags. And you were hearing me talking earlier about the services that Fred provides, and I'm just absolutely amazing at the man's energy and all that he does to help people 
with land, converted away from those synthetic chemical fertilizers that are destroying your land, replace it with good organic fertilizers that are building the soil, building the microbial life, and growing healthy plants. And as I was saying earlier, Fred can deliver the fertilizer to you in a spreader ready to go. He can actually spread it if you want him to. You can pick it up at one of the Morales locations, and he can always blend that seed. If you're looking for a cover crop, if you're looking to put some oats in in the fall, why not get him to go ahead and mix the seed in with your fertilizer? That means one less track you'll have to make, uh, one less pass you'll have to make over the pasture land. And Fred just does so many things at such reasonable prices to help make your bottom line better. If you're in agriculture to make money, you shouldn't be giving all of it to uh, the guys that are delivering the chemical fertilizer and pesticides, which is what so many farmers and ranchers end up doing. Fred wants to put that money back in your pocket, get your land healthier and help you do well. Whether you're a homeowner or whether you're a rancher with a 1,000 acres, you'll find what you need at Morales Feed. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to the calls. going to be Mike and Ryan and Ron, and Mike's first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Are you enjoying the sunshine as much as I am? Well, I'm not out in it, so uh, I'm not enjoying it as much as I will in about two hours, but uh, I am definitely enjoying it. We'll take it in. Uh, Bob, I'm calling. Uh, uh, I had showed you a picture on my camera here several weeks ago of a plant I have. I didn't know what it was, and you identified it as a night-blooming cirrus. Right. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And a man a little earlier called in. I think his name was John, and you identified it as a night-blooming cirrus. But when he said that he took a leaf off of it, and transplanted it to make another plant, it bloomed out with some yellow blooms. And my question is, you know, these leaves have little hairy roots all up and down them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know if he just laid it on the ground to reproduce it or what. But uh, I, I usually, I usually uh, root them in perlite. You could just lay it on the ground and it would eventually root, but I root it like other cuttings in perlite. And I'm sure what he had is just he had two plants in the pot. He hadn't seen whatever this other plant was. And when he was taking his cuttings, he just, uh, all of the, some of his cuttings came off of a different plant from his night blooming cirrus because, uh, uh, night blooming cirrus blooms white, period. <laughs> it doesn't last, it lasts for one night. And he had yellow flowers that lasted for several days. So I don't know what was growing in that pot along with his night blooming cirrus, but, uh, he ended up apparently propagating more than one thing. But you can make, you can make lots of plants off of night blooming cirrus, but just, you know, take, take those little sections. They should root in perlite, uh, should have lots of roots on them in three or four weeks and then just pot them up and treat them like a mature plant. Well, my question was, uh, could it, could the leaf that he took and transplanted, could it have uh, mutated to something else? Or uh, no, uh, one in a billion chance. Okay, so whatever he transplanted was not a cirrus. You're exactly right, and mutations. They do occur, um, but you know you're never going to have something that you know, makes that much of a change. If you get a mutation, you might have a flower that's a slightly different color. You might have a flower that, uh, you know, is a slightly different size, but, you know, you're not going to go from a dog to a monkey, you know, in, in one, even in a highly mutagenic uh, environment, so to speak. No, he, he had a different plant. Couldn't tell you what it was, but he, there were two plants in that pot. 
Well, okay, that was my question and my comment. Uh, let me ask you one other thing. Uh, is it too early to put out uh, morning glory seeds? Uh, yes, I, yes. I have some grandpa ought that come uh-huh. up on their own yeah. uh, all year long. Would it be too early to put them out? I would think it is way too early. They sprout okay. so quickly and they freeze back, and that's why when a morning glory makes seed, it makes a lot of seed because a lot of it's going to sprout too soon and freeze. So now I'm I'm probably guessing another three weeks before I'll be planting grandpa odds. Okay, well thank you very much, and you have a good day. You do the same, Mike. And uh, let's get Ryan in here, Ryan. If we don't get all your question answered, we'll hold you and continue. But good morning. Good morning. How are you, Bob? Good, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Hey, uh, I live over here in Sattler. I live up on okay. a big limestone hill and uh, uh-huh. pretty poor soil quality. Uh, I'm trying to beef up my property lines uh, for in case people on either side of me buy buy the lots up. And uh, I got a buddy who owns an olive orchard down in Victoria, and he seems to think that olive trees would uh, do pretty good up here on this hill. I just kind of wanted to pick your brain before I buy a bunch of these trees and see what you thought about that. Well, I never would do a monoculture. I, whatever you plant, I would plant some variety. It's going to be a little colder up on that hill. And, uh, olives, you get, you get very far north of San Antonio and, um, you're, you're pushing their limit as far as cold hardiness, uh, because we can get very cold. It's been a while since it happened. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I certainly think it'd be worth planting some, but I, I wouldn't you know go too heavily on olives i go probably with more of some of your more native materials i would any way you can you know just kind of berm up those areas because anything you plant is going to struggle sitting on a on a chalk hill like that but um any way you can if you if you can just berm up the areas you want to plant you don't have to necessarily build planters or really create a raised garden but if you can just berm it up your stuff will do a whole lot better South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening. Uh, I guess we got Ryan's question answered. He went on about his Sunday. So it's me, Ron and Reese and Larry and Ronnie. And Ron is up first. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Bob. A little chilly morning in Branson this morning. Well, it's getting that way, and they said by Wednesday and Thursday night we could be down in the single digits. So, Oh, you keep it all up there for me, please. Uh, I know. My <laughs> wife has a sister who lives in northern Wisconsin, and they said they're going to be down around 20 to 25 below zero. So yeah. uh, I hear you. Hey, what, uh, one of our managers is from Wisconsin, and she she's not going back, but she keeps telling me there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad wardrobe, to which I respond, I do not have the wardrobe to deal with that. So anyway, what's going on today? Okay, some questions about dwarf tomato plants. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't realize there were such plants. I knew there were determinant and indeterminate, but I had never heard mm-hmm. of the term dwarf before. So I went on uh, YouTube, and on the subject line I put in uh, dwarf tomatoes. A friend of mine has started using or planting those. Uh, last year, I believe, was the first year. And uh-huh. he's the one that mentioned it to me. So I went on it, and there's a 
the uh, title on their uh, Dwarf Tomato Project. Apparently there were a group of people who have been developing the varieties of these dwarf tomatoes over, mm-hmm. I think it's something like seven, eight years. Yeah, yeah, anyway, it's just selective breeding, yeah. Yeah, and uh, anyway, uh, he said the plants are very compact, very sturdy. He said the main stem of the plants are very sturdy. They grow at about three to four feet uh, although they, he he said he would stake his, but mm-hmm. he said the production is fantastic for the size of plant that it is. <laughs> and I was wondering if you'd had any experience with them or what your opinion is on them. Well, you know, 30 years ago or maybe even longer than that, they came out with uh, the patio tomato. And this was one of the first of those that was, you know, selectively bred for a strong stem and short stature they have since come out with some of them that are almost trailing there's one they call tumbling tom that they suggest that people you know grow in hanging baskets and i i think the the key to what your friend said is that the production is very good considering the size of the plant uh, for me, I'm used to getting 35, 40 pounds of uh, tomatoes off of a plant. And when you talk about, well, maybe I'm going to get two or three pounds of tomatoes, um, it, it's just, it doesn't take up as much space, but it takes just about as much work to grow a dwarf tomato plant as it does a bigger plant. And uh, I just have a long list of people lining up that want to share my tomatoes. So uh, they're fun. They're a novelty. And if you're not looking for, you know, super high production, they are certainly, you know, take up less space. And uh, I, I would agree with the friend. I would still either stake them or put them in a little short cage. But uh, it's not really anything that's real new. We, we've had these super, I, I would tend to call them more compact than dwarf. But um, I, I just, you know, I, I, I'm just more of a production guy. Uh, and, and in my case, I'm, I'm looking for quantity, and it's not quantity over quality. You can, you can get a very tasty compact tomato, and you can get, uh, a lot of very tasty bigger tomatoes. So, uh, give them a try by all means. And if your space is limited, then they would be a fun thing to try. But, um, keep in mind that when we're talking pounds of tomatoes, um, you're gonna, you're gonna have a significantly reduced production rate. Okay, I see we, we're in a duplex, and we just have a deck uh, on mm-hmm. the back side or on the south side of the, of the house or in the, sure. on the deck. And so I use 10-gallon. I've I found these fabric pots is what yeah. they're called, I believe. Yeah, yeah they're and called they smart pots. Felt. Yeah, they're yeah. like a felt material. And uh-huh. anyway, so, you know, I'm very limited. So I have no garden space. I have to rely on the... Uh, the pots to uh, sure. produce whatever we want. Well, so I by all means, it would be worth trying. I, I think it would very definitely be worth trying. My only advice would be don't go out and pay a whole lot of money for the latest and newest hybrid because you can still find patio and there are a couple of others. I'll have to think hard to come up with the names of them, but uh, these really aren't anything real new and uh, you should be able to find them, you know, for no more money than you're used to paying for a good tomato transplant. So uh, don't, don't get carried away with latest and best because there's some still some old, but old, but goodies out there. And, uh, 
you know, and in fact, if you had come to me and, and just described your situation, I probably would have suggested patio as being one of the better tomatoes you could plant. So, um, yeah, you, it's, it's a good idea. I think it would be great in your situation, but don't, don't overpay for the newest and latest, uh, um, necessarily because, I, you know, in this world, we, we've got so many people getting into gardening and unfortunately there are a few people out there that are, taking advantage and selling things, shall we just say, on the Internet and places for a lot more than they are really worth. So just yeah. be sure you're getting good value for your money. Okay. Well, appreciate your opinion and your advice. Thanks, Bob, very much. You are always welcome. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Certainly. Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk to Rees. Good morning, Rees. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. Okay. I have a quick question. I heard you early during the show about a device that can be used to dig a hole. Yes. Uh-huh. We, I have seen those ads on Facebook and Instagram, but can we buy this locally at one of the box stores or maybe I don't. Green? We we have them at Shades of Green. I I don't know about the box stores, but uh, okay. uh, there there's more than one out there. And the one that I really favor, and it's uh, they're made down in Alabama. They're a good American-made product, uh, but it's called the Max M A X, the Max Bit. They're two different sizes. I like the smaller one, and uh, I just put it on my uh, cordless drill and. Let me tell you, it, it's just the neatest little hole digger you've ever seen. I, I think I have three of them. I have one here at the nursery, I have one in my shop, and I have one down in my mailbox down in my garden. I want to have one close at hand when I need it, but uh, I'm I'm very mm-hmm. fond of them. Yeah, and they oh, would yeah. make a very but good Valentine's present. Yes, we do. Do you have it at Shears of Green? Oh, yes. okay, that's good to know, Bob. Thank you so much. That's all I had for you today. <laughs> all right, Reese. Well, enjoy thanks for the call. And enjoy you too. Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll be in the garden instead of behind the TV set. But uh, oh. people that yeah, I'm, yeah. Well, we won't we won't go there. I I'm not a I, I watch very little TV. But you know, it's it's a good game. But I I will keep my socially distancing. My engineer Chris and I were. were Saying that there'll there'll be a five yard penalty for everybody that doesn't observe social distancing in this football game. So don't don't be caught off sides. <laughs> and you have a have a wonderful nice, Sunday reason. Nice talking to you, Bob. Likewise. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh Larry's up next. Good morning, Larry. Hi, good morning, Bob. I really enjoy your show. I'm a uh, well relatively uh, new listener to your show and uh uh tell you what i got here i got i, I bought some uh a couple of years ago well, about three years ago i bought some uh fruit trees a uh, uh-huh. couple oranges mexican lime and a uh, meyer lemon and i put them in whiskey barrels uh, okay. they get the morning morning sun all the way up until about one o'clock okay uh, and they seem to do well they're not growing the mexican lime is growing crazy i'm not having any problem with that but and the Meyer lemon's not doing too bad, but the the two oranges I seem to have problem. One of them produces a heck of a lot of fruit, and it doesn't grow any taller. It seems to, and the other one is the one I have the most trouble with. I, I, this season, I a lot of the leaves were falling off on one side of the tree, uh-huh. and it was still producing fruit, but it, it looked like you know a, a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. <laughs> well. Good. You know, the, uh, there, there's a lot to know about 
uh, growing citrus and about citrus in general. And, of course, there's varying cold hardiness as well. But um, there is a, a lot of people want a little bit more compact tree where they're growing on a porch or patio or something like that. And there was yes. developed a what they call a dwarfing rootstock. It's called Flying Dragon. And you can take the same Myers lemon or the same Mexican lime or whatever and graft it onto this dwarfing rootstock, and the tree will only get about half as big as it normally would. So it's possible oh, really? that your tree that just doesn't grow much, it may very well be just on a dwarfing rootstock instead of on a, a standard rootstock. So uh, it may be a perfectly normal thing. Now, citrus does like plenty of good organic fertilizer if you're growing in a pot through the growing season i'd be using uh you know probably good liquid organic fertilizer every two weeks or so and um you you've got the minimum amount of sun that they would really do well if you had a place where you could get a little bit more of that afternoon sun uh your fruit would be sweeter and um you probably would get a little bit more of it, but it sounds like you're getting reasonably good production, and I'm not sure that there's anything unusual going on. I think uh, the one of your trees may have gotten a little bit dry last summer, or a lot of citrus did, and that probably is responsible for the root loss. But uh, if you just watch your watering carefully, maybe pick up your fertilizing a little bit, uh, you should do just fine. And my, my suspicion is that that orange that just is staying the same size is probably just grafted on fly, Flying Dragon, and that was designed for that purpose, to produce a smaller tree that still produces lots of fruit. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it small because I have it in a smaller area up against sure. close to the house. But but the uh, the yellowing of the leaves that I'm missing, I what I did was I, I cut a hole in the bottom with the chainsaw because the roots uh-huh. were binding and they were starting to, starting to squeeze through. And I put some uh, mulch, uh, uh, some compost down, uh, or, or, or topsoil down, and I and I put I tipped it back over on it, and uh-huh. it seems to be doing well. Uh, I bought another orange tree from a, a, a local nursery, and I I had planted it, and I don't know, it's getting some yellowing on the top of, of the leaves, and I, I really haven't been watering it too much. I I don't know what yeah. what the cause of that is. Well, citrus, a little bit of it's just just the time of year. Uh, citrus does not always have the prettiest foliage. Your your best judge of how the tree is doing is going to be when the new growth comes out this spring. And um, if your new growth comes out yellow, I think it very definitely, you know, you probably need to increase your nutrients, uh, maybe more, maybe different fertilizer. But typically... Just an overall yellowing just indicates that the tree got a little bit too dry at some point, and if it gets a little bit too dry, it'll yellow for the next several weeks. So uh, let's look and see how the new growth comes out before we make any radical change in what you're doing. But uh, I, I would, you know, get a, a good has to grow or liquid fish or something like that. I would be feeding those trees pretty regularly, and if the yellowing is due to any nutrient deficiency, that should correct it. Oh, great. Okay. I thought it was too much water was making it yellow. Um, typically, um, if, if a pot drains well, 
um, you, you're not likely to be really giving it. You never give it too much water. You could do it too often. But you're indicating to me that this tree was getting a little bit root-bound, and a root-bound plant's going to use water twice as fast as a plant that's not so root-bound. It doesn't really hurt them to be root-bound, but uh, I would oh, okay. much more suspect something getting too dry than getting too wet. If you have a plant with a really strong root system, it's going to use a lot more water than a plant that's you know just kind of in an average growth state. So, uh, uh, and, and just remember, when you water, you want to really flood it because you want to get every root in that pot thoroughly saturated, and uh, that's sometimes hard to do. So, uh, I, I don't think you've got a problem with too much water. Oh, great! I'm sorry, I thought it was the opposite. Uh, as far as fertilizer goes, liquid fertilizer. What would you recommend? Liquid fish, and um, you mentioned, and there, there are two good products that Medina makes. Um, yeah. Oh, the Fox Farms people make a fairly good one. It's not as readily available, but uh, in my own plants collection, I I alternate. Medina makes a liquid called Hester Grow Plant, and then they have a new one out that's yeah. called Medina's Liquid Fish Blend. And I just switch back and forth in those on no regular schedule, and uh, I grow pretty good plants. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, I'll do that. I, I've been using some... Something I got from the one of the box stores there. It's an organic fertilizer, but quite honestly, it every time I use it, it doesn't seem to make a difference in the growth of it. I don't know why. It, I mean, they well, produce I'd... fruit, sometimes too much fruit that the leaves <laughs> want to break off. But, uh, you know, I pick well, them off sometimes and they get too heavy. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, again, that I'm sure there are others out there. Um, and, and it's interesting. We travel a bit going to different gift shows around the country and things. It seems like every part of the country now has some good organic fertilizers, but uh, I certainly couldn't begin to tell you all the different ones that are out there. So I would judge by your results. And like I say, if you want to try something different, I've always had really good luck with uh um, with the Medina products. So you keep me posted. I appreciate you listening, and we'll do our best to always help you. Sure will. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. You're certainly welcome. Thank you, sir. All right, let me get a break out of the way, and then we'll get right back to phone calls. Uh, I get to talk about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center and, uh, you know, talk about a place that has a lot of different plants. Fanix has about 10 acres developed. They actually have room to grow a little bit more. but sitting right there on the same piece of ground where old Lady Fanix opened the nursery over 80 years ago. Fanix is getting, well, they're getting more and more organic products out there. Um, <laughs> they're not 100% organic, but I'm not going to hold that against them. But you'll find the great organic fertilizers and mulches and compost and things over there. Uh, they also want you to know that coming up next weekend, uh, they're having a special weekend. One of the product lines that they carry is the Back to Nature product. And they've got a couple of different great composts and soil blends and all. And next weekend, not today, but next Saturday and Sunday, all the Back to Nature uh, products are going to be 20% off. They're also going to have some factory reps there to answer all your questions about all of those products. Uh, in the meantime, keep in mind that Fanix not only has plants, but they have the Traeger pellet grills and supplies. They have that Ego uh, lithium-ion battery-powered equipment as well. It's just always fun to visit Fanix. Right where they've been for over 80 years over on Home Green Road in southeast San Antonio, Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. 
All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Ronnie and Manny and Brian, and Ronnie is up first. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I'm sitting out in my hot tub right now looking at these two trees. <laughs> well, don't drop your phone. <laughs> right. That's what I was worried about. Uh, I have a question about uh, these two trees. I recently acquired them, and uh, they're about the same size, but they're dramatically different trees, and I know a little bit about them. And uh, the first one is an Italian stone pine. Okay. And the second one is a Joey avocado. Okay. Both in like three gallon pots, and they're about uh-huh. two and a half feet tall. The question okay. on the Italian stone pine is um, the tag on it when I got it from the nursery said to uh, uh, to trim it accordingly to keep its nice Christmas tree shape, mm-hmm. but they didn't explain exactly what to do to. Uh, keep it that shape now i've heard well, of handling before but that's, yeah. that's all i know about pine trees um it is not really pruning it's more like shearing and basically it's just giving it a haircut um okay. and i you know i i think <laughs> unless you are really looking you just want to have something that stays christmas tree shaped italian stone pine is one of the few pines that does relatively well in our area it doesn't get as big as the aleppo and some of the others but uh um if you're going to want to keep a christmas tree tree shaped you're basically just about once a month you're just going to go out there with uh uh with shears and there's no particular styling or anything you cut and don't cut you're just you know just basically trimming it to the shape that you want it to be and um uh if you don't do it it will assume its natural growth shape which is sort of a full upright growth which is a lot less work and i think certainly looks more natural but um attention pine like i say it's it's one of the pines that does well here it does need to be where it's out in full sun you never ever want to get it let it dry out completely you want to plant it where the soil drains well but uh um if you decide to trim it just think of it as giving a haircut and just basically do the uh do the same thing to your tree that your uh hair cutter does for you uh, there's no no secrets or no exact technique to it okay that sounds good um if if you I, could see these if you could see the way that they grow uh a regular cut christmas trees the people that trim those things literally wear an armor it looks sort of like the old medieval chain mail and they use a razor, razor sharp machete and they just go around that tree just you know swish 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 and uh that's how they go about trimming but uh I, you know, again, unless you just did set on having a a super cone of a tree, I would just ignore that and just let it grow to its own natural shape. Well, my initial plan was to keep it shaped up for, you know, maybe two or three more years and then Mm -hmm. planning it out. Um, And like I said, right now it's in a three-gallon pot. That seems like, for the size of tree it is, that seems like a really... uh, like the root system has probably been compromised to get it into that pot. Do you, well, you um, recommend yeah. upgrading the pot? Or I, you'd probably so like do well to put it in a 
Yeah, probably five gallons. You ever want to put a small plant in a great big pot? But uh, no, I think it's probably time to go to a, a five or even a seven gallon container. Just remember to put soil in the bottom of the new pot, set your tree down in there, and fill in around the edges only. Don't ever bury it any deeper. But uh, I think it would be very, very happy with a little bit of an upgrade on pot size. Okay, great. Now, getting over to the Joey, um, I have basically the same problem with that. It's, you know, it's uh, wanting to grow now, and uh, I know that they're not cold hardy in the first, say, three or four years. Well, they're cold hardy uh, until until they get rough bark on them. Um, and right. how often that is just depends on where they're growing and a few other mm-hmm. things. But as long as they have the smooth green bark, uh, they're not going to be totally cold hardy. Once they develop the rougher bark, they will take a typical San Antonio winter. Now, that's not to say that if we get an abnormally cold winter, and I hate to use anything even close to normal because we just don't have normal weather here. But if it gets, and it can get very cold in San Antonio and has over the years, but uh, uh, once it's got the rough bark on it, it will go down to upper 20s, or I'm sorry, upper teens and lower 20s without any problem. Right. Uh, it's it's blooming right now. Uh, uh-huh. does, it need, does it need another avocado to cross-pollinate or... You'll get more fruit if you have a second variety, if you have an opal or something like that, but you will get at least some production on Joey at least. It's somewhat self-fertile, so you you should get at least some avocados from it. So um, are Joey and Lila about the same size? Yes, they're going to be very similar in size. Joey and Lila and opal are probably the three that are going to be very similar um, you can expect them to top out somewhere 12, 15 feet height and probably 8 to 10 feet uh, in width. And always always See, keep in uh, mind, whether it's, whether it's an avocado or citrus or anything else, your best production will come off of a bush. Many people prune, prune them to be tree-like just so they can work around them, but it uh, doesn't make it even better or make it any more productive. Uh, to prune it up to be more tree-like. So you just you trim it whatever you like. And in the case of your avocado, do be do keep a close eye right at the base of the tree because just like citrus, just like roses, just like other fruit trees, they will frequently try to sprout out from the rootstock, and you want to remove that immediately if you see any growth coming out right at the base. Okay. Um, the suggestion on this tree was that you keep it in the pot until it starts developing that uh, rough bark but don't you think i could cover that whenever it's uh whenever it's gonna have a chance of freezing and i could get my hands around it well uh, you know that it is definitely much easier to maintain in the ground than it is in a pot and covering will always give you uh, 8 to 10 degrees of protection. But I've lived in San Antonio when it got to 5 degrees here. So if we got an exceptional winter, then what you do is cover it and then put a little heat source inside, either a big incandescent light bulb. (laughs) I couldn't get that big word out. Uh, Incandescent light bulb or, you know, some other heat source, uh uh, you could have to supplement the heat, but uh, they certainly are easier to maintain in the ground than in a pot, and uh, that's that's the direction I would lean if it was me. Great. 
when you when you had five degrees there, I think we had six here. But since then, I've there's a lot of microclimate around here. I think I probably have two or three degrees higher than what you know yeah. other parts of New Braunfels are. But regardless, uh, I thought the same thing. Put it in the ground. Yeah, I I certainly would put it in a good sunny spot. All right, and let's see. I think that's all my questions. I appreciate it. Oh, I. I do have one one further question. I have uh, a Myers lemon in a pot and in the ground. The one mm-hmm. that's in the pot is not on. I'm pretty sure it's not on drooping, uh, dwarfing stock uh-huh. because it's it's probably about five foot tall, four foot tall. Okay. But the uh-huh. one in the ground has it's been in the ground for like ten years and it's not it's not four foot tall. It's about wow. four foot wide, but not four foot tall. So. <laughs> Well, check the base. If the root flare is not exposed, do go ahead and expose the root flare. And um, if it's, is it producing good fruit for you? It produces, but not heavily. But the thing is, it's kind of shaded somewhat by a uh, satsuma. So okay. that could be why there's not a whole lot of fruit. But I, every year I'll get, a, you know, 10, 10 lemons. Well. And that's fine, but... Yeah, do do check and expose the root flare if it's not exposed and see if that makes any difference in its growth. It could easily be on a dwarfing rootstock, but even on a dwarfing rootstock, I'd expect it to be six to seven feet. I just wouldn't expect it to be fifteen feet. So I you may right. you may have a buried root flare and uh, may just need to up your fertilizing on that one a little bit too. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Bob. Ah, uh, it's my pleasure, Ronnie. Thank you for the call. All right. Well, let's just get back to guarding and back to the phone lines. Manny is next. Good morning, Manny. Hi. Good morning, Bob. Can you morning, hear me sir. Okay there? Loud and clear. I've got some questions uh, for you. They're kind of all related. It's in regard to pruning. We have a okay. plumbago that's pretty well established, about 10 by 3 by 4, and it's right on the property line, and, you know, we're going to be looking to put a, a fence there in the near future. And right now it's a little scraggly. Uh, just curious, like, how would we prune that? How much? Um, once we do that, of course, you know, when is the right time to fertilize? Because we don't want to lose it. It's a really nice, sure, sure. A nice plant. So um, any advice on that? Well, you know, anytime you prune, you're going to stimulate new growth. And we don't want to have a lot of new growth coming out while we still have the potential for a, for a hard freeze. So timing-wise, I'm going to tell you late February, early March is probably going to be a pretty good time. Plumbago, my plumbago, where I live outside of Bernie, freezes down near the ground every year, at least down to the level of the mulch. So um, you won't hurt it to cut it down to two or three inches tall if you want to keep it a little bit more compact. Um, on the other hand, if you want a bigger plant, I've seen plumbago where it's supported, you know, by a fence or growing up into something. I've seen it get eight or ten feet tall. So if you want a bigger plant, then I would tell you just cut it down to, uh, you know, wherever you want it to branch out. So uh, I guess in summary, I'd be waiting about two or three weeks, and then I'd just basically cut it back as far as you would like to cut it. As far as fertilizing, there's never a bad time. Um, if you haven't fertilized in the last 90 days, I'd do it as soon as you possibly can. I typically, 
in a pot. Here at the nursery, we try to fertilize plumbago if they stay around that long. We try to fertilize them with a liquid fertilizer at least once a month. Mine in the ground, I tend to use a dry fertilizer because it's easier, and I try to do it three or four times a year. But there's never a bad time to fertilize. And, you know, if it's been three or four months since you fertilized until you feed it today, if you say, well, I fertilized it back in January, then I'd probably wait and fertilize it in April. Would you say the same for, I guess, other perennials like a Greg's Mist Flower, Pride of Barbados, or a Firebush? Well, Pride of Barbados is probably going to freeze to the ground. Other than, and because mm-hmm. once you, once you're cutting that, you're just cutting dead tissue, so you're not going to stimulate new growth. Um, I've cut about half of mine back, and I just haven't had time to do the other half. So go ahead and cut your Pride of Barbados down any time you like, and cut it down pretty close to ground level. But same advice on the fertilizer. Uh, Greg's mist, um, it just gets kind of ratty. I tend to cut it back to a couple of inches tall, but the timing would be the same there because my Greg's mist still is, has a good deal of green foliage on it. But uh, I go ahead and cut that Pride of Barbados down because that's, that's just like cutting your hair or your toenails. You don't even, it's not even going to know it's been cut. But uh, it'll just look nicer. There's no rush to do it. But uh, if you want to do it all at once, that's fine. But uh, whatever works for you, I would go ahead and fertilize all of them, though. Okay, and the firebush, is that kind of the same same scenario there, March, early March? It's rare that firebush doesn't freeze back to the ground. And we're looking mm-hmm. at potentially some pretty cold weather uh, toward the end of this week. So it's probably going to freeze back on you. Um, if it doesn't, yeah, everything else would apply. If it does freeze back, I will tell you that firebush is the slowest plant in the world to come back after it freezes. I always tell people it comes back two weeks after you give up on it. So don't be surprised if your firebush is slow to regrow. That's normal for that particular plant. All right. And we also have a lantana that kind of came up in the, um, you know, we didn't expect it. It's kind of an undesirable spot. But Uh it's kind of more the traditional pink-yellow flower, and Uh it's already kind of cut back down to the ground, but... Can we transplant that? Is that fairly safe to do so? Or I would wait. I would wait until you see new growth appear, and at that time, you okay. should be able to transplant it very successfully. But you don't want to transplant it and then have a real hard freeze. So I'm going to wait until I start seeing little buds swell, and at that point, you transfer it, move it anywhere you want to, as long as you put it in good sun. All right, and I guess um, one more or two more tree-related questions. We have a mystery here. We have uh-huh. a What's been identified by an arborist as an Asian orchid tree. We don't know if it's Hong Kong or not. Um, You know, we don't know much about it, Uh, any care, any regular watering. Is there a way that we can determine it grows kind of um, really, really long stalks uh, high Uh up? It does freeze down after a hard freeze. Um, Okay. And if it, if it's the... Yeah, you'd almost have to see the flowers to tell the variety. The standard purple orchid tree um, blooms for about two weeks in the usually late spring, early summer. The Hong Kong orchid tree blooms all summer long. Now, if it uh, if it freezes back, sometimes it grows a year before it starts blooming. But uh, ours in our parking lot here, that one's that thing's been in bloom for six or seven months now. So uh, you can tell by the flower what variety you have, but just looking at it, it's sometimes a little different. Now, the Bohenia congesta, the uh, white orchid tree, much smaller leaves. But if these are fairly big leaves, we're going to have to see a flower to determine whether it's just purple or whether it's a Hong Kong. 
So we've heard from our neighbors that it flowers, but we have not seen it flower in three years. So I don't know if there's if there's any anything we're missing. I mean, we do fertilize. We try and water regularly, but it just has not produced any flowers. But it's growing very vigorously. Well, it may have frozen back at some point, and it's just uh, recovering. Um, if we go through the rest of this winter without a hard freeze, you almost certainly will see flowers late spring, and I think it's probably related to that. My name, I'm going to let you go because I've got to get three more people in here before the end of the show, and uh, got to get one commercial break in here as well. So, Chris, run your commercials, and we'll get back and squeeze in Brian and Larry and TJ. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening, and it's going to be uh, Brian and Larry and TJ, and Brian's up first. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Bob. You hear me all right? I hear you loud and clear. Good deal, good deal. Three quick questions for you. Um, I know that you talked before about uh, seed bed prep and for tomato plants and so forth is uh-huh. right now about the time I need to be putting out my organic dry fertilizer on top of my uh, where I'm planting. I did mine this past week. <laughs> in fact, okay. I that that was my that was, you know if you look out now my cages are in place everything's ready to have some tomatoes go on the ground but it's going to be a few weeks before I do that but yes sir I think your your ideal time. Uh, and what I do is where I'm going to be planting individual plants, whether it's tomatoes or eggplant or peppers, then I make that little mound, uh, where I'm going to be planting a row crop like black-eyed peas or bush beans or something like that. I do the same thing. I put my fertilizer down and there's just a row of compost on top of it. So, yeah, it's a beautiful sunny afternoon. If you need a project, it'd be a good one to do. That's what I was going to ask you. I couldn't remember if you said to kind of blend it in. Hand mix it. I know you don't like tilling the soil up and bringing those seeds up to let well, them germinate I, from the weeds and I, so forth. And yeah, I don't. I don't really till it in or turn it in until I plant. But then when I get ready to actually put the plants in, yeah, I'll just you know I, I just don't really do it intentionally. But I'm going to work up the soil right. just a little bit around where I plant it. But uh, I, I wait until I'm ready to to set the plant out before I do that. I think it just. I don't know. For me, it just seems to work better. I'm able to concentrate the water in that area. And my only problem is I get so many earthworms suddenly in that area that it's hard to hard to plant without cutting up worms, which I try not to do. But uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's not an exact science. You were you do what works for you and you'll be just fine. Okay, great. Uh, One of the other things I've got is uh, my wife gifted us uh, three or four pots that she found sitting out at the edge of the neighbor's driveway uh, <laughs> okay. when they moved. And in one of them was a small citrus bush. Appears to be a few years old. It's got the good hard bark on it. And we thought it might be an orange, some type of orange, but it turns out it's a Myers lemon. Okay. But it's only got a, it's only got about six or eight inches of soil in the bottom of this big, huge pot. And I'm wondering, it made a half dozen really nice lemons this year. Uh I'm wondering if I shouldn't be replanting that thing and giving it a lot more soil below its root system. That's what I would do. I would just because it's only a couple of feet tall, and I know it's more than a year or two old. 
Well, it just in in that shallow a soil, the the problem is going to be trying to keep it adequately watered. I just slip it out of the pot, you know, put fill the bottom of the pot with enough soil that you could just set it back down on top and fill it around the edges. And I think that'd be a great project and uh, probably give you a bigger tree and a lot more fruit. Well, that's what I was kind of hoping because as nice the lemons as it produced, I. I'm like you. I, I think it can do a lot more fruit. I just don't think it has the soil in that pot to support it. Well, you've got two and, projects uh, this afternoon then. Yeah, and the third one I guess I'll wait on probably. Um, uh, tell me again about thinning, not pruning, but thinning as you call it, uh, my peach trees for to help them out this year. Do I wait for the blooms to come on or not? No, no, no. Go ahead and do it now. Uh, you've, got, you've got a busy afternoon going on. <laughs> There, there's no reason um, uh, with a tree that goes into a form of dormancy, uh, it's you're not going to stimulate new growth by pruning. So uh, I would get that done. In fact, I might make it my top priority. I might do that first. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate you spending some time with me, Bob. Oh, always a pleasure, Brian. You have a wonderful Sunday, and Larry will be up next. Good morning, Larry. Hey, good morning, Bob. Happy Sunday. And um, to you as well. Thank you very much. I got a question for you. I've got uh, some double knockout roses, and I'm I'm moved into this house, and uh, and they were pre-existing, so they're in a uh, planted in front of the house under the eaves, and they're surrounded by uh, river rock. Okay. And um, I've got some blooms and some new growth already coming out, so they're they're coming out of dormancy. But um, what? How far should I trim those back? To the point that you want them to branch. Um, they are an own root rose. They don't have to be trimmed at all, but they will get uh, tall and somewhat leggy. So, uh, And I, now it's be a great time to prune them, uh, but you just cut them back to the point you want them to branch. Now, uh, one thing I would do, I would pull that river rock up and see if there's any weed block fabric underneath it. If so, you need to get rid of the weed block. Uh, if it's just rock on top of the ground, that's fine. But I wouldn't be at all surprised to, you know, find a layer of weed block underneath there. And if you want to keep that rose healthy long term, the weed block needs to go. Okay. All right. I'll I'll check for that. What What do you recommend uh, for fertilizer? Uh, once Once because uh, I use on my lawn the uh, that dry fertilizer that I get from your shop. Use it on your roses too. And your vegetables okay. and your flowers. <laughs> it's you know, it's just it's a gimmick to get people to buy things they don't need. They come up with special winterizer fertilizer and oh, this is specifically for citrus and this is specifically for camellias. And sadly, a lot of the people that play that game, they put the same fertilizer in four different bags and call it by four different names. And occasionally you may have, you know, something that has a little extra micronutrients, but you don't need to be using anything special on there. Um, if you want to uh, do something special for uh, roses, you could mix a little bit of what we call color essentials. It's just an improved form of rose flow. But on the others, no, just do the same thing. Uh, do the same thing you're using on other plants. Okay, yeah, and because they, they seemed to like it last year, my, my, my dogs enjoy it too. <laughs> 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 
You know, it's funny. Some dogs do, some dogs don't. But at least we know it's not going to hurt them. And water it in as best you can, and that'll that'll make it a little less attractive to. Uh, uh, I'm looking at two black labs, and their motto is, "If you can't eat it, roll in it." So uh, <laughs> I know oh, exactly what you're talking you. about. I remember Hannah. Um, oh yeah. Last thing um, is, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, is it is it time to fertilize the lawn right now? I absolutely. If you haven't fertilized in the past ninety days, I'd do it as soon as possible. Um, okay. All right. And if, can I depend on my uh, my irrigation system to water these roses? Or do I need to water them specifically on a on a schedule? You need to uh, put on, and knockouts need more water than any other rose that I've ever grown. So you need to uh, you need to water them really thoroughly, but um, uh, probably two three times a week. <laughs> I'm laughing because Dr. Kirby's having to slide Hannah out of the way here in order to get to his chair. He she always gets right where Dan wants to sit. <laughs> anyway, but uh, no, I just just be sure you're watering thoroughly when you water, Larry, and you should be you should be in good shape. And hey, I appreciate the call. Let's get TJ in here before the end of the show. Good morning, TJ. Good morning, sir. Good morning. You hear me fine? Just fine. Excellent. Uh, question for you. I have a scraggly, mangy-looking fig. Okay. And I'm also concerned about my loquats because I have some buds and I have some fruit starting. But uh-huh. I hear that we're getting some cold weather, and I don't want to lose it. Well, um, you're not going to lose anything. If it gets real cold, um, you'll you'll have less fruit, and there's not a lot you can do about that because uh, loquats tend to bloom. Usually they bloom in the fall, and then if we have a real cold winter, you don't get much fruit the next spring. If we have a typical winter, you'll get plenty of fruit next spring. But loquat so big, there's not a whole lot you can do to cover it. But uh, here in San Antonio, they've raised the forecast to where I don't think we're going to get enough cold to bother the loquat at all. Uh, you're not your fig's not going to be hurt if you want to trim it up a little bit so it's less scraggly. I would say you can go ahead and prune it anytime you like. Well, this this thing is is like four years old and it hasn't uh-huh. grown and it hasn't produced and it has. I'm thinking of should I transplant it? Is it out in full sun? It is. It is not. It's got then like you, half then, a day with the sun. No, you probably do need to transplant it to a sunnier spot then. To really produce well, figs want sun all day long. All right, excellent. Now, I'm sorry to keep you here real quick. I'm just going to rapid fire here. I have I have some some uh, grapes, and my husband wanted a trellis, but I want production. And I left it, you know, just to prove them, just to prove to him, say, hey, I'm going to give you this trellis you want, but it produced nothing. And I was reading that you're supposed to trim it really well so that the next growth will give you your you, production. You really, you really have to thin a grape out a great deal, and now is the time to do that. And uh, TJ, I'm going to have to hold you there because I have to get out right on time for the news. Pet show is next.